Just a little bit. Ooh, ah. Ooh, ah. Just a little bit. Ooh, ah. Just a little bit more. <laughs> no, no, you're not familiar with that song. Oh, ooh, not, no. ah. Just a little bit. Ooh, ah. A little bit more. No? No, I'm not. Okay. It's not indie enough for I, you, I is it? I feel like I'm missing out. It's not indie cool enough for you, then. I, I guess. Okay. We're ready to rock. Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey, kids, comics! Clark Kent has a job. I just want to go on a date. Faulty metaphor. Kryptonite kills. You're assuming I met the green kryptonite. I was referring, of course, to the red kryptonite, which drains Superman of his powers. Wrong. The gold kryptonite's a power sucker. The red kryptonite mutates Superman in some sort of weird... Guys, reality. Besides, I can just tell something's wrong. My spider sense is tingling. Your spider sense. Oh, stay behind and put around in the back cave with crusty old Alfred here. Ah, oh, no, I am not Alfred, so I forget Alfred had a job. But gee, Mr. White, if Clark and Lois got all the good stories, I'll never be a good reporter. Hmm? Jimmy also jobs here pretty much when you lost Avengers Assemble, let's get it going. Hey, kids, comics! Hello, everybody, and Hello. welcome. Oh, sorry. It's tricking over the <laughs> It's not like we don't do that every week, is it? Oh, no. Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. Thank you very much. And welcome to another Hey Kids Comics, your lovely podcast for lovely people. Unless you're not so lovely. Because we're not. Yeah. No. Unless you violently rip up your comics. Why would they do that? Because they're not so lovely. Uh, I see. Um, I, I, I had an all introduction oh, plan. that guy made the statue. Oh, God, yeah. Did you see that on the news? Yeah. A guy... Uh, I don't know if this made the news in America. It wasn't in America, it was over here, wasn't it? Yeah. Or anywhere else in the world that you may be, New Zealand or Australia or... Where else do we get listener emails from? No idea. China. Japan. One of them. Yeah. <laughs> One of them. Both the same. <laughs> it's the entire Japanese and Chinese audience turning off. Um, yeah, I don't know if this made international news. Mm-hmm. Based on the news reports we saw in Florida, it probably didn't. Yeah. Uh, a guy found a stack of comics... In the in the dumper, in the dumpster, in the bin, mm-hmm. and uh, he made a statue of them. A horrible statue, might I add? Yeah, yeah, it's not a great statue. Oh no! It has to be. It looks like a big lumbering behemoth <laughs> yeah. mummy, doesn't it? And uh, a comics fan mm-hmm. has gone to look at this statue, and there is some dross in there, isn't there? A couple of nineties X Men comics. Yeah. But there was an Avengers number four in there, and apparently there was a couple of other. Rare Mm. and expensive comics and on the picture that was on the news website on the BBC news website you can see Avengers number 4 yeah and he ripped it up to turn it into this statue and apparently the statue is valued at £20,000 mm. and the guy who's looked at it said I could have got £20,000 for Avengers number 4 so he wasn't impressed my thing with that is just like did you hear this one in America a guy was knocking a wall down and he found a copy of Action Comics number 1 in his wall mm. Why is it in the wall? Because they did used to use papers in the walls as insulation back in the day. See, all our walls are brick right. in old houses, so we didn't do so that. So someone insulated the wall with action well, comics. Well, with wall. a bunch of papers. They found a bunch of newspapers, but one of them was action comics, number one. Why did these always numpties who find this? Maybe, maybe you don't knock down enough walls. Maybe I don't, don't knock I'll, down I'll look enough, enough bins. I'll look in enough bins, yeah. Where I, I will find a copy of Amazing Spider-Man number one. And go, egads! <laughs> Amazing Spider-Man number one. I can I'll afford this up and turn it into a statue. No, I would. I would go. I can now afford to send Michael to the Cuba school. <laughs> That's what I'd do with Amazing Spider-Man number one. Anyway, this episode that you're currently listening to, lovely listener, will go up on the 25th of July. Which By which I mean to say, today is the 25th of July. 
<laughs> in future. In the future. Hello, future people. Which means you've still got one week, count them, one week to get your questions in for the Q&A episode, mm-hmm. which will either be next week or the week after. We've not decided yet. Yeah. So you've got one more week. Remember the rules? The stipulations, I should say. I don't like rules, do I? As a rule, we, we yeah. like to break rules <laughs> wherever <laughs> possible, as long as it doesn't get us thrown in jail. Mm. Unless that in, in itself may be Unless fun. Unless we can avoid getting out of Yeah, 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 that would be fun. So, the stipulations are no more than three questions for each person. If you do send us three questions, one for me and one for Michael, so that one person doesn't get more questions than somebody else. And the third question can be a generic anything question for both of us, or generally, or, or for any member of the extended family, mm-hmm. all of whom have agreed to join us if they get questions. The extended family? Like yeah. Grandpa and... No, no, I'm not going to rope Grandpa and have a huge round table. <laughs> yeah. of everyone from our family yeah. joining in with the show who probably don't even know we do it probably not I don't think I've ever mentioned it surprises the people we've already told yeah because we've already told you we do this oh <laughs> I forgot yeah. so yeah uh, remember we strive to be a family friendly show so bear that in mind when you write us the questions mm-hmm. and I reserve the right to decide what is and isn't family friendly <laughs> And only email them us at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. Because if you send them via Facebook or Twitter, um, A, I'll forget them, and B, I'm not on Twitter. So it wouldn't get to me. Hashtag heykidscomics. It probably wouldn't go to us. It would probably go to some. Somebody must have that. I know the heykidscomics is on Twitter, I think. Is there? Yeah. Because there is is a heykidscomics podcast that isn't us. The heykidscomics vintage. And yeah, there's a heykidscomics blog as well, isn't it, that isn't us. I don't think I knew of either one of them when we started this show. They stole our name. Did they? Yes. We came up with that name, did we? Yes. It was on spinner racks across the world in the 1950s. Oh, no. <laughs> we went back in time. We did. We, yeah. And copyrighted it. We did. We Which created warp, it. Warp, mm. warp. When this baby, it's 88. And then the when doctor shows up. it's 88. The doctor shows up because mine doesn't have to, it's 88, did. Anyway, there you go. Preamble. Um, we've not done anything else interesting, have we? No. No? Um, I can't think I've even read anything. Oh, Jim Starlin's Warlord. Why is nobody telling me that was any good? Because it's fantastic. Joss Whedon told you it was good. Joss Whedon told me that the Thanos story where he meets the Avengers is good. I've not got that yet. Uh-huh. I'm reading the Warlord stuff that precedes that, and it's excellent. Mm-hmm. We may have to cover one of them on the show. Thousand Clowns was just genius. Okay. Absolute genius. I mean, the answer to that question is obviously, Andrew, you never asked us if Jim Sterling's <laughs> Waterlord was any good, which is a fair comment, mm-hmm. I think. So, anyway, that's what I'm reading at the minute. It's really good. Um, so, it's emails then, isn't it? Yeah. Bit of emails before we get into the meat of the show, which tonight is the second in Loeb Sales Colors trilogy. Or the first. Was Earl Grey the third one? I think so. That's why we're doing them backwards. No, we're not. No, oh, we've done Blow, which was the middle one. one. Yeah. And now we've gone back and done the first one. Yeah. So the last one that we do will be the last one that they did. Yeah. So inadvertently, we, we'll we have got edited. something right. Yeah. Yeah. We never claim to be good at this. Or even maths. I blame George Lucas. What, at being bad at maths? Yeah, because he started with number four. Yeah. It's his fault that I'm, I I'm actually, like this. I actually had an argument with someone the other day. But it is four... But it's not, because when it came out, it was just Star Wars, it didn't even have a number. But yeah, but it's four, look on the DVD, but it still... Technically you're both right, uh, which is the best way to be right, oh, yeah. technically. Our first email is from the Rub- Rubbly, 
<laughs> the lovely Rob L. Stubbs. He said I, missed, I mixed his L with his R, mm-hmm. and I did. Is that a spoonerism? I think that's called a spoonerism where you, you mix your... Spoonerism, that yeah. sounds hilarious. It's a spoonerism where you take the first letter of the two words that you're trying to say and mix them over. Like bledding and reeds. Yes, absolutely. Bledding <laughs> and reeds. Yeah. Bledding and reeds festival. If anyone gets a good yoke, it's the ju- the use. Oh, dear God. Uh, defending Rick Jones. I don't think Rick need Nick... Oh, I'm just going to not talk. Hello, Michael, who I have not befriended on Facebook, as your youth might wear off on me, so I start using the current youth talk. And hello, Andrew, you hep cat, with your super fly moves, who I'm not worried at all about being infected with you speech, because you're like super olds for reels. And <laughs> he's put reels with a Z. Sorry. Which is funny. <laughs> I enjoyed the history lesson, as always, Andrew. Well, I'm glad about that, because I'm always afraid of boring people rigid with the history lesson. As I have seen the art of Steranko on those shield issues, but have no real awareness of where he came from or where he went. I should clarify something. I'm not an artist in the drawing pictures kind of way, although I do have a sketchy grasp on the details involved in such efforts. I am at heart a writer who often struggles turning off that part of my brain. It's interesting to consider that Stranko would probably have been more acclaimed for his advanced art style if he hadn't gone off to make real money. As a writer, though, he's only of mid-range talent at best, and his art elevating his sometimes shaky storylines. Yeah, his Strange Tales run was a bit shaky in places, mm. but the art's great. So you See, that's the thing with comics, isn't it? Yeah. Good art elevates mediocre storytelling. Mm. Bad art can drag a good story down. I always feel sorry for writers in yeah. any respects. Got no I respect. guess if, if he illustrated his Twitter, that would be hilarious. <laughs> I was going to mention that at the end of this. It's twi- if you're not looking on um, Jim Stranko's Twitter feed, yeah. it is absolutely bat guano crazy have you, nonsense have you the of the highest order. Where he was talking about how he drew his own... Yeah, he drew his own money. <laughs> that was... Genius! Because it was like he went to so much effort yeah. to do that. It was just fantastic. Because some people said, "Why didn't I just go out and get a job?" Mm. But to get a job in the in that time period, it would have taken a long time to make the amount of money that he made. He yeah. drew his own money, lovely listener. Just in case you've not you've not found this. And what he did was he meticulously drew a couple of twenty dollar bills and a couple of one dollar bills, didn't he? Yeah. And he photocopied a number of them as well. And he would photocopy. He put his drawings on the back of a couple of real dollars, and then he put the photocopies in the middle, and then he put a couple of real dollar bills and $20 bills at the top and bottom of the stack. Mm. He would then go to a busy department store in the middle of the busiest time of a Saturday. He would buy something for, say, $60, wouldn't he? Yeah. And he would pay for it with a couple of 20s and a couple of 1s, two of which were real, which we would put at the bottom and the top of the stack. The middle section were fake. He would rely on the fact that the woman at the counter was incredibly billy, just take the money off him and put it in the till. He would then take what he'd bought back for sixty dollars. Mm-hmm. No, no, I'm, I'm messing that up. He'd buy something like fifty something dollars, wouldn't he? Yeah. So he'd get a couple. So he'd get money change. So he bought something for sixty dollars. He would give a um, something like three, a fifty and a twenty, and so he didn't have change. We got ten dollars back of real money. Yeah, something like that, wasn't it? And then he would take that back for a refund and get the full amount of that back in real money. Mm. So. He may have only spent like a couple of dollars, twenty dollars, say, of real money, but then he got a ten dollar bill back in change, and then the sixty dollars that he paid for the thing back in real money. Yeah. And he just kept doing that until he made the right amount of money that he needed. 
Um, have you read the one where he slapped Bob Kane? No. That's the one that went up today. Yeah. It's, God. I don't know how much of it's true, mm. but if even half of it's true, the guy's magnificent. Oh, yeah. The ones where he's like, oh, you're all off to bed now, but I'm off hiking up these mountains. Yeah. I have four hours sleep a day. I live on lentils. <laughs> yeah. I have four different women every single night of the week. I'm 74, <laughs> and look at me. I am a bronzed Adonis. I, I, have, I, I have much respect to the man, to be honest with you. Anyway, we interrupted Rob's email to talk, yeah. talk about Steranko's Twitter feed. <laughs> now, I have to defend Paul Rick Jones, continues Rob, whose behaviour in these issues of Captain America seems quite uncivilised. Let's consider what Rick has been doing, however, to understand his actions. He's been helping Bruce Banner in trying to cure himself of being the Hulk, and Banner works in isolation in far from civilised portions of the country, meaning that Rick is also isolated and an obsessed individual. If Rick isn't with Banner, he's hanging out with the Hulk, who isn't suited to civilised virtues. This combination has dulled Rick Jones' sense of propriety to a large degree, meaning that his behaviour will often reflect this. So, of course, if he sees an outfit in Captain America's room, he'll try it on. I wonder what he would have done if he was in Dazzler's room <laughs> and he'd seen an outfit. You think he still would have tried it on? Become the dazzling. <laughs> Dazzlet. Or just Daz. That would work. Dazzler and Daz. Dazzler. I don't think he could call himself Daz. That's a, a brand of um, of cleaning stuff, isn't it? For clothes. But hell, at least he'll be white enough. That's true. That's very true. Uh, of course, Rob continues, he's also gotten used to being useful, either as Banner's lab assistants or trying to contain the rampages of the Hulk. So his first impulse will be in trying to help Captain America by trying to find a similar role, which is why he asks to be booking. Rick is also dealing with a sense of failure as his efforts to aid Banner have failed, and his efforts to help control the Hulk's rage have also failed, so a third failure at placing Cap's dead partner eats at him. His first thought is, I want to be useful, but his second thought is, what if I let Captain America down? Which explains his behaviour adequately enough. With a lack of personal boundaries due to long periods of isolation, of course, he also opens Captain America's mail, because it might be really important. I think you're clutching at straws there, Rob. I think, I think that Bucky, Rookie... Rocky. In this particular story, it was well beyond personal space boundaries. Yeah. Meet me, your new partner, Cap! Okay. He was Cap's own personal space invader. Yeah, I, I, I think that. I mean, it's, an, it's an, a, a good argument. Mm-hmm. I don't think I agree with it, but okay. I find it somewhat disturbing, Rob continues. Steve Rogers keeps a blow-up doll on various rooftops. <laughs> and he puts Steve Rogers' face masks on. <laughs> Now I've just got images of blow-up dolls with Steve Rogers' face on. Or if the Falcon comes and flies down and like, has this long-winded <laughs> conversation on him like Superman and that issue of Hitman. He turns around. <laughs> turns out it's, it's a, a blow-up doll. doll. <laughs> but it would probably help him to get all that out, though. Yeah. So that's that's probably good. I don't want to judge why he and Sharon took Carter get up to in their busy personal life, as it's none of my business, says Rob. Sharon Carter with a cat blow-up doll. <laughs> The Avengers... It may, actually, it could be perfectly innocent. It may have been one of those Macy's Day Parade dolls. Blow up things, couldn't it? We, our mind has gone to a, a bad place. Yeah. But it didn't need <laughs> The Avengers did fall rather easily to the knockout gas in a card device, including the synthesised Avenger Vision. But as they weren't prepared for the attack, I can understand why they got knocked out in the first place. Once the Vision woke up, he should have turned intangible and ghosted right through the coffin, which may explain why they had a rocket launcher ready. The reason the Vision can be affected by knockout gas is his body is fully functional. If you don't believe me, go and ask Wanda Maximo. I can almost buy that his body's fully functional. I don't buy that he breathes. Mm. 
Because I'm pretty sure Division's been out in space, hasn't he? Yeah. Okay, so there you go. I totally agree with that Captain America makes Rookie kill a bunch of guys' line of thought, though. That is clearly what he does. He did, didn't he? Mm. <laughs> Here, Rookie, kill all those terrorists. I'll back you up in a course of law. <laughs> Matt Murdock for the defence. <laughs> Maybe the Illuminati should have exiled Captain America to deep space. <laughs> With his motorcycle full of deadly explosives and his use of teen sidekicks to commit murder and his weird collection of blow-up dolls. <laughs> That's a mini-series I would like to see. Okay, I'm out, my British compatriots. Rob L. Stubbs, Jr. Thank you very much, Rob. Uh, as usual, always nice to hear from you. He's got a PS. I think the reason Doctor Doom wears those masks is because it has a horrible case of evil acne which he can't cure, which is also contagious as he gave it to Madame Hydra who then gave it to Whitney Frost. <laughs> My theory could be completely wrong as I don't have a fine degree from the Doom Librarian Technical College of Medicine. Well, I understand that those are very difficult to come by. I think only Doctor Doom has one. To be honest with you. Uh, our next email is from Thomas DJ. Hi, Thomas. Hello. The uh, subject heading, I don't know which moment from no more, no more Heroes 2 is more golden. Namely the fact that apparently every comic book writer and editor you don't care for has to be Scottish like Grant Morrison. Or Doctor Doom tripping over a cat. <laughs> it's not, Thomas. It's not the ones I don't care for. It's the only accent that I can halfway yeah, decently yeah. do. Isn't it? So by definition, they just became Scottish. That is not all we will hear of Thomas DJ this episode. Mm -hmm. So there's a little tease for you, lovely listener. Our next email, Gabriel Jimenez. It's been a while since we heard from Gabriel. It has. I hope the wedding plans are going well, Gabriel. Hey, guys. Hey, Gabriel. Just wanted to write in a hello. I've recently been on a Hey Kids Comics binge. Well, I hope we didn't make him sick. Catching up on all I've missed out on work. Started on the last couple of Superman's birthday episodes and just finished the first Marvel now. As usual, great stuff. I hope to write a proper letter soon. Letter? <laughs> letter letter soon. Take care, bios. Well, thanks, Gabriel. It was nice to hear from you. However brief. Our next email is from Dr. Bill Robinson, who apparently isn't a real doctor, but he plays one on a podcast. Which, I, that's perfectly okay. Fair enough, yeah. As long as no one asks for a real diagnosis, he's fine. As far as I know. Hand drawing his little doctorate. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe he gets it from the Latverian Technical College of Medicine. Oh, he went to a convention and met Steranko and said, hey, Steranko for him. <laughs> That's just brilliant. I wonder what else he could do. Oh, the, 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 the mind boggles. Yeah. Oh, the potential, doesn't it? You wouldn't do that now if you ever met him. Yeah, you can, can you draw you me a, dollar me a doctorate? <laughs> yeah, draw me a dollar bill. Yeah. But put your face in the middle of it so I'm not going to use it for real and then sign it for me. That would be awesome. Uh, the subject heading they are is, oh, I'm a lazy bugger for not emailing him more often, which I like very much. It's very good. Greetings, Leyland. Greeting, Bill. Once again, I've been remiss in keeping up with emails. I last wrote to the show back in January. I was listening to A vs. X. Let's just say that the series was not a favourite of mine. I really don't like where they put Cyclops at the end of that story. I'm glad they either borrowed most of them or flipped through them on the rack. As of today, July the 6th, I am into my second day of trying to sort my comic collection. I've been listening to all my back episodes of Hey Kids Comics in my queue. Blimey, I think listening to you two blokes for two days has affected my articulation. It certainly affected his slang. Mm. We've got a bugger, a blimey, and a bloke. <laughs> I love the idea that we're just corrupting lots of Americans with uh, British yeah. slang. I love the idea that they could call their workmates wankers, <laughs> and their workmates not know that they're insulting them. Yeah. That would be so amusing to me. <laughs> <laughs> Let us 
know, lovely listener, <laughs> if you're in a foreign country and you've took to calling your friends wankers and they don't know what it means, and you've told them it's a term of endearment, honestly, <laughs> yeah. that would be hysterical. Um, I will try to email more often like Luke Stignetti, but I doubt I can beat his tenaciousness, continues Bill. I gave you a shout-out in our Back to the Bins Lone Ranger episode, which he did, which I had listened to. It was very good. Make a trailer! Mm-hmm. I'm just going to keep flogging that dead horse until they make a trailer. Fair I know um, Paul Spataris' genius cannot be, cannot be rushed, yes. and he's absolutely right. But how hard is it to make something that says, listen to Back to the Bins, it's dead good? We do it in ten minutes. So. Yeah, they, they cut that bit out. You have my permission. Cut that bit out put it at the end of your trailer. That works, <laughs> doesn't it? I mean, you'll have to tell them where it is, but I'm sure they've found it. I wanted to have you read the old gunfighter's speech in the Lone Ranger 2 issue of the 2012 Dynamite Room. If you don't mind, here is the speech. However, this must be read in your Western American accent. Let Michael read the Ranger's line so he doesn't feel left out. Um, well, I'm more than happy to do this for you, but the show's been out now. So you're not like, are you going to splice it back in so that people who listen to it later get a special extended edition? Yeah. That would be cool. Yeah. Go back and alter your old episodes and see if anyone notices. <laughs> Do a George Lucas. Yeah, that would be awesome. Anyway, your line's the. Woodson, right. you don't. Are you all right with that? Okay. Okay, okay so I've got to do my best Clint Eastwood. <clears throat> Ever kill a man, Ranger? Hell, you don't have to answer. you still got a righteousness about you. I had that once. I was a young deputy back east, green. Not as green as that kid outside, but plenty green enough. Shot a drunk butcher who came at me with a bony knife. I still felt righteous after the first one. Hell, I still felt righteous after the first dozen. Somewhere after that, I stopped thinking much about whether they deserved it. I looked round one day, and I wasn't a marshal anymore. I wasn't a husband, or a father, or even a son. I was just the old son of a bitch who was really good at killing. That was three years ago. Three years of roaming. Of waiting for the next stupid bastard who had something to prove. Righteous? I've written so far I couldn't find it on a map. I'm tired, Ranger. I'm an old, tired son of a bitch who's still pretty damn good at that one thing. I can't stop being good at it anymore and I can stop breathing. I shot them boys for the same reason I'm walking out there now. Because it's what I do. What's up? You don't... The only way you're stopping me, Ranger, is to shoot me in the back. That don't strike me as the act of a righteous man. Well, it's back to comic book sorting. Be seeing you, Dr. Bill Robinson. Did you enjoy that? Yeah. I quite enjoyed that. It's always nice to play Josie Wales. <laughs> Whooped him again, Josie. Whooped him again, kid. Anyway, thanks, Bill. That was good, that. It's nice to be an actor every now and again, isn't it? I haven't done any acting since my spirited William Shatner impression. Oh, yeah. Many, many moons ago. Mm-hmm. Oh, I did a bit for um, New Roads to Hell. Yeah. For uh, the aforementioned Thomas DJ. Have you heard that trailer? I have not. You need to edit it into Metal Gear Solid 2. Okay. Okay. I may put it in this one as well. Yeah. Because uh, Tom has contributed to this show. Mm-hmm. Our next email is from the mighty Sean Engel. It's just called Superior Spider Man. Hey, Andy and Michael. Hey, Sean. Sorry that this letter is a little late, but I spent the last week recovering from my vaca- vacation sorry, and celebrating the 237th anniversary of our Declaration of Independence from your formerly not-so-fur aisle. No offence, as the two of you probably had nothing to do with the excessive taxation levied upon our forefathers, but rather than rehash centuries-old grudges, I'd rather talk about the superior Spider-Man. See, whenever somebody says that to me, I'm always reminded to die out of the vengeance. Have I persecuted you? Have I persecuted your people? Which I haven't. Obviously. How do you recover from a vacation? Isn't the vacation... Isn't the whole point of a vacation, too? Yeah. 
Normally, one day after you get back after your holiday, though, it's like you didn't go on holiday, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, so, okay, fair enough. Maybe you should always book a week off after you get back mm. so that you can have another week to wind down. Yeah. That's a good idea, I think. Anyway, Sean continues. Up front, I've never been much of a Spider-Man reader. Oh, I read the odd issue that was laid out at my local library. They used to keep copies of comic books for kids to read but not check out. And I fondly remember the spider buggy storyline where Peter was losing his wall crawl abilities whenever the car was around him. But other than that, my knowledge of the character comes from his animated adventures and movies. But after hearing you and Mr. Paul Spataro of Back to the Bins fame praise the work of Dan Slott in the books, I had to give it a try. Needless to say, I wasn't disappointed. I'm always glad when people end with that. I'd hate to think I've made people go out and buy something and then hated it. (laughs) If you've ever done that, lovely listeners, I'm very, very sorry. Really, I am. The idea of Otto in the body of Peter and his knowledge of the villains he's taking down is truly compelling. In the first issue, where he planned an almost Batman-like takedown of the Sinister Six, this showed how clever Ock was, which was something Peter could never have done. I also love the fact that once Peter re-emerged, we saw him regretting that he didn't do some more clever things like Otto did, such as the Spider-Bot. But you are correct in the comparison of this book to Nightfall. We are essentially seeing how someone with a fantastical drive to do his job and a very loose morality would fit into the role of the hero. Even with the expunging of Peter from Ock's mind, I truly can't see Octavius remaining Spider-Man from now on. But like the Knights trilogy, this one looks like it's a fun ride and one of the first Marvel books in nearly 20 years that I've decided to add to my pull list. Thanks for adding to my comic book collection. I won't be telling my wife. Sincerely. (laughs) Sean Engel. P.S. Can't wait to hear the Steranko show later this week. Damn you two true freaks for putting out so much awesome content. Yes. Damn them all to hell, as uh, Charles Aston once said. Our next email is from Joe Burkholz. We've got time to squeeze this one in. It's just called Podcast. Joe's new, I think. Mm-hmm. Always nice to have a newbie, isn't it? It is. Hello, Joe. Hello, Leyland the Elder and Leyland the Younger. I think I know which one we are. I'm Leland the Younger. (laughs) I became aware of your podcast this past May and began listening to all the back episodes trying to catch up to the present, which is how I like to do things with my podcasts. I'm 22 and have recently graduated from college and the early Hey Kids comics episodes helped me get through writing my major paper, which just so happened to be about comic books. Oh, how coincidental. How indeed. It'd be brilliant if we got quoted in it, wouldn't it? Oh, yeah. That would be awesome. It turns out my college, the University of Minnesota, has an enormous comic book collection in the archive, so I decided to use this to my advantage and write about comics for my paper. While I have only become a comic book fan per se in the last year and a half, I've devoured all sorts of podcast and reading material on the subject. I have attached the paper here for you to read if you would like. It may not be the most well-written paper on comics, but I work really hard on it, and if you choose to read it, I hope you enjoy it. Well, I did read it. Did you? Yes, it was very interesting. Okay. It is uh, a very interesting paper where he composed the ages of comics mm-hmm. to the ages of the American popular psyche of the time. So the golden age of comics coincides with World War II, mm-hmm. which is generally considered the greatest generation, and then the bronze age of comics, the decline of optimism in the United States. He's made me want to read Steve Englehart's Captain America run, yeah. which I've never read. So, fair play, I enjoyed it. Really good. Anyway, why am I writing in, said Joe. As I said, my plan was to listen to all these episodes until I got to the present. Then I saw that you were covering Marvel now. And because I was reading a few of these books, and because I developed an affinity and respect for both of your opinions, I want to hear what you had to say on the subject. And then listen to the spotlight on Jim Steranko, which I very much enjoyed. 
Captain America is one of my favourite now titles, but I can't quite figure out just why. It's just a very interesting idea and concept, and since I've recently read almost all of Brubaker's run on the character, it's neat to see Rick Remender doing something different with Cap. Also, I had similar feelings to Uncanny Avengers number one as you did, but since I'd already ordered number two, I read the second issue, and it does get better. The story arc isn't the best at first, but it does improve. With Fantastic Four and FF, I like these books. I just don't have enough money to keep buying them, you know, with student loans. However, read Hickman's run. Jonathan Hickman is the kind of writer that has his stories mapped out a ways in advance, which admittedly can be tedious on a month-by-month basis. I was lucky enough to read it in full, and let me tell you, the payoff when all of his plot threads come together is absolutely magnificent. I see Michael possibly liking it more than Andrew, but you never know. Thus far, Hickman's Avengers and New Avengers can be a tad confusing, but they are fun stories that you can really feel building towards Infinity. Infinity will be my first event that I'm trying out, and I will determine if I ever try one again. (laughs) Superior Spider-Man. Like Andrew, Spider-Man is my favourite character. Not just comic book character, but possibly of all time. I like the idea of SSM. It's interesting, really. I don't like the execution of it thus far. The biggest hole in the story, why doesn't the Avengers or Mary Jane or anyone realise that he's not Peter? It also makes me sad that Ghost Peter was the most annoying part of the story before the Parker ectomy. His incessant whining was grating, and that is sad that Peter Parker, who we know and love, is the worst part of the story. However, he'll be back at some point, and I guess I'll just enjoy the ride. Um... I'm going to address... Mary Jane did realise something The Avengers and Mary Jane have realised something's wrong. But first of all, you've got to put yourself in the position of the characters in the story. Whilst body swapping is perfectly acceptable within the superhero genre, to the average people on the street, mm-hmm. you if you had the brain of somebody else, I wouldn't instantly think... That's not Michael. Oh, I don't know. If I came home with chinos and a snapback... Uh, I think I may just think you were being a jerk. <laughs> I wouldn't think that's not Michael. So I always think it's because we know stuff the characters in the story are not privy to. Mm. And sometimes that makes us go, why are they being so stupid? And you've got to kind of pull yourself back and realise that the characters in the story don't know everything you do. And I think if you put yourself in that frame of mind, them not instantly thinking, that's not Peter, a mind swap must have gone on, is perfectly acceptable. Yeah. That's my thinking on it, anyway. Unless it's Wolverine. Unless it's Wolverine, and it's a lame ultimate Spider-Man story. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Joe continues, while still on the topic of Marvel now, I recommend picking up Jason Aaron's Thor book. The scope of this book is enormous, and it has been an epic ride so far. On the topic of Jim Steranko, I've never read any of his work, but want to at some point. Recently, Steranko has taken the Twitter world by storm. We've just discussed this, yeah. Joe. Um, and yesterday posted the time he met Bob Kane, which is awesome. Uh, Andrew, it would be awesome to read this in a voice of what you imagine Steranko to sound like. He's a tall tailor within himself. Thanks, guys. Joseph R. Burkholtz. Um, yeah, thank you very much, Joe. So, I very much enjoyed your article. What do you think Steranko sounds like? Oh, I don't know. I would have to read his tweets and come up with a character and a backstory. Hey, I'm Jim Steranko. No, I think Jim Steranko! <laughs> no, that's a bit Brian Blessed, isn't it? I guess. I'd have to think on this. That's what Stanley. Yeah. yeah, I think he'd be very zen thinking about it. Yeah. yeah. I think he'd be very. So, I glued a real dollar bill to the back of a fake dollar bill. Mr. Lister. I then spent. <laughs> Mr. Lister, sir. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear God. Final email. Uh, oh no, that's that's it. That's it for emails because that's one of the Q and A questions that we've already received. Is it? Uh, right. So that about wraps it up um, for this week's show. We'll see you next week. <laughs> no, no, I'm kidding. I've uh, I have done over 19 pages of notes on Daredevil Yellow. I'll be damned if I'm not going to read them. Mm. Uh, so we'll be back after these messages. Throughout its history, people have found this place disquieting. 
Strange and unexplained phenomena run rampant, so much so that it's been called the city that lives by night. And the city that lives by night needs a darker form of protector. Black Talon. Please don't kill me! You tell them all, Nocturne is the Talon's hunting ground. Your kind had best look elsewhere for prey. Nightbreaker. What was this? Some sort of joke? No! Gloria, this sounds crazy, I know, but she did shoot me. Something happened. I'm still not sure what, but people don't recognize unless I truly concentrate on their wanting to see me. It's like I'm invisible. Fairyman. The ghosts you refer to have done more for me than you two have. They've given me my sight back. <laughs> They've given me better than my sight back. Dreamcatcher. Witches, warlocks, mages, magicians, shamans. Call us what you like. It's all the same. We've helped when we can, eluded those too ignorant to understand that magic isn't evil. And it's made us sensitive to others who have magic running in their veins. A quartet of heroes standing together must face a new menace. This can be painless, you know. You ain't putting the fronters on me, Slag. Just take your shot, yeah? I was hoping you'd say that. Who is going to use the roughest elements of the city? You that rose red bitch? That's right. I'm not even mad at you for adding the bitch part. Because I am. And I know you guys are some of the nastiest, toughest, roughest, meanest bastards in this town. Am I right? Yeah! yeah! Good, because I have need of you. To send this city. Come on! This ends tonight. Down New Roads to Hell. New Roads to Hell, the first Shadow Legion adventure by Thomas DJ. A new novel coming soon from Airship 27. For more information, including character sketches and behind-the-scenes information... Visit the Nocturne Travel Agency at welcometonocturne.blogspot.com and airship27.com. Are we back? We are back. I feel like we should kick into the Back to the Future music. Are we back? Back hey, to the future. Yeah. Uh, Daredevil Yellow is the topic of tonight's show. It is. Because we had so much fun mm-hmm. doing Spider-Man Blue. We couldn't resist doing And we're going to do Hulk Grey. It's in the book, lovely yeah. listener. Which means it will definitely get done. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like everything else that's in the book. So, first we were blue in a blue world where everything was blue and all the sea was blue. Yes. And now we're all yellow. And now we're all yellow. Daredevil Yellow was the first of writer Jeff Loeb and artist Tim Sale's Colors trilogy for Marvel Comics, which also consisted of Spider-Man Blue and Hulk Grey. Unlike Spider-Man Glue... Spider-Man Glue. <laughs> I was laughing when you said trilogy as well. Captain America's not included. Not done it. It's not out. Unlike Spider-Man Blue, but exactly like Hulk Grey, Daredevil Yellow concerns itself with the very early days of its titular hero, Daredevil. In reality, Manhattan lawyer Matthew Murdock. And this really makes quite a lot of sense. Spider-Man's early stories, the ones primarily produced by writer Stan Lee and artist Steve Ditko, are iconic and rightfully regarded as classics. Whilst there are elements of those stories that can be considered dated now, they are still exuberant, entertaining, and feel like a character that has a creative vision behind it. To that end, messing around with the sacrosanct Lee Ditko material is almost comic book suicide. Daredevil does not have that problem. It's pretty fair to say Daredevil was not a book that was one man's creative vision, it was not a project that a creative team put its all into, and it was not one of Marvel's shining jewels, at least in the early days. First published in February of 1964, Daredevil issue 1 was a crime noir thriller, telling the story of 
titling Jack Murdoch, a second-rate pugilist forced to take a dive to make enough money to send his son Matthew to college. Jack made Matthew promise he would forego any kind of physical altercation and go make something of his life, just as they had promised his presumably dead mother. Matt obeys his father and picks up the nickname Daredevil for his lack of prowess from his peers, but in his off hours he's actually a skilled and natural athlete, practising as he does in his father's gym. However, two events were about to happen that would change young Matt's life forever. In the first, Matt is on his way home one night when he spots an out-of-control lorry transporting atomic waste about to flatten an elderly man. Matt reacts instinctively, pushes the man away, but the waste spills out and splashes over Matt's face, blinding him, but enhancing his other senses to almost superhuman levels, and bestowing upon him a radar sense that actually allows him to navigate better than sighted people. The second event saw Jack refuse to throw a fight in the big leagues that he knew he could win, and instead saw him taking a bullet for losing his employer a lot of money. Matt donned a yellow and black costume, some wanks have joked that it could only have been designed by a blind person, and takes down the people who murdered his father while still graduating top of his class at law school. The first issue is full of crime noir staples, the down-on-his-look boxer with a heart of gold, seedy back-alley gyms, double-dealing loan sharks and men in fedoras, and in many cases doesn't read like a superhero comic at all. However, this introduction is not exploited in subsequent stories. Starting as they mean to go on with Daredevil, the second issue appropriates a Spider-Man villain, Electro, and shoehorns DD into a semi-science fiction tale involving stealing the Fantastic Four's equipment. Fellow Spider-Man villain The Ox will show up in issue 6. There will be attempts to give DD his own rogues gallery, with the Purple Man in issue 4, the Matador in issue 5, and Mr. Fear in issue 6, but only the Owl, introduced in issue 3, will have any real staying power. Likewise, the secret identity shenanigans are pretty samey. Aside from Matt Murdock being a respectable working man, not inherently wealthy like Tony Stark, or a genius like Reed Richards, there was still the humdrum, if only they knew, scenarios of Matt working day by day with college pal Franklin Foggy Nelson, and one of Stan Lee's favourite devices, the love triangle soap opera between Matt and Foggy and dreamy secretary Karen Page. Stan had also pushed this storyline in the Hulk and Iron Man, and to a certain degree in Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four. The superhero stuff was also rather familiar in the early days, with Dee Dee being an above-average athlete with a few enhanced senses and a smart mouth. The only unique thing about the strip was the blind angle, and it took other writers and artists later on down the line to realise the full potential of the character. For the first six issues, Dee Dee wore the yellow and dark red or black costume before switching to the more familiar red devil suit. The yellow costume was rarely referred to again in future issues. Subsequent reprints of Spider-Man's first meeting in Daredevil even went so far as to recolour the whole thing to make it look like Dee Dee was wearing red, and even Frank Miller only used it in one panel in his retelling of Matt's origins, the five-issue miniseries Man Without Fear. Unlike the outcry and hubbub that surrounded Spider-Man Chapter 1, or the rebooting of Superman, I can't imagine there was a huge outcry from fans about messing around with the sacred text when Loeb and Sale announced this project. We gave a full bio of Loeb and Sale in the episode we did about Spider-Man Blue, so we needn't rehash that here. Loeb simply felt that Dee Dee's origins hadn't really been revisited. Again, Man Without Fear concerned itself with Matt Murdock rather than his first steps as a costume crime fighter, and that this was an area that could be expanded upon with certain points clarified. 
Daredevil Yellow came out in between September 2001 and January 2002. We're reading it in the hardcover that came out in 2002, and the entire book was written by Jeff Loeb with art by Tim Sale. Richard Starkings and Wes Abbott lettered and Matt Hollingsworth coloured. As with Blue, this is a lovely oversized hardcover that came out in May of 2002, and with an introduction by Stan Lee. The first issue has a beautiful ink-washed cover. Two figures, a father and son, we can assume a Matt and Jack Murdoch, walk through a New York that is all brownstones and fire escapes, past Fogwell's gym. Symbolically, Daredevil hovers in the background. As with all his other work, Sales sells a slightly grimy New York, the underbeller of the city, rather than the tourist attraction, and as usual, it's the little touches that sell it, like the huge ornamental boxing gloves hanging above the gym entrance. An interesting touch in the hardback is that each cover is preceded by the unfinished pencils. What do you think of the cover, Michael? It's alright, but hasn't got anything on the Spider-Man blue covers. Do you not think? Do you not think they're as good as the Spider-Man ones? Not enough naked women, is there? <laughs> well, I can't really argue with that. <laughs> I don't know, they're fine, but... Like, I do prefer the Spider-Man blue ones just because they're more... iconic. You think? to look at. Um, to see, there's nothing wrong with these. Because it's Tim Sale, and Tim Sale's awesome. I just think... I get what you're saying. I don't, I don't want to say they're a little bit dull, because there's more on these than there are on the Spider-Man covers, really. Yeah. I get what you're saying. The Spider-Man ones are... Like you say, they are more postery. They are more iconic. They, they deal with the iconic people mm. in Spider-Man's life. And they are just more recognisable as icons. Daredevil's... You've got to take into account, beyond the comic book reading community, Daredevil's not very well known, no. even though he's now had a film about him. But who watched that, really? Well, there is that. I think this, the opening splash page makes a better post, uh, cover, really. Do you? See, I didn't like that splash page. It's just Daredevil with his hands right in front of the camera. I, so, I guess, but I like the little... The, the mass, mass head. Yeah, the masthead. Here comes Daredevil, the man without fear. is ripped straight off the original comics. Yeah. It doesn't say the man without fear. There's a couple of nice touches on the cover. Rosen building, I presume, is a nod to Sam Rosen. The Montgomery Printing Co. I don't know who that's a reference to. Kurtz? Hab? Is Kurtz a reference to anyone that we know of? JB Cleaners? And Russ? I don't know whether that's Tim Sale doing nods to people. Maybe they're all just generic names. They could be. Yeah. And I'm just reading too much into it. (laughs) The Championship Season is the title of part one. On the anniversary of Karen Page's death, Matt Murdock, a.k.a. Daredevil, is restless. To help him overcome this, Franklin Foggy Nelson, Murdoch's law partner and best friend, has suggested Matt write a letter to Karen Page, which Matt concedes is not a terrible idea. To gain perspective, Matt decides to start at the beginning. He is in law school with Foggy. Foggy is a big fan of Kid Murdoch, an over-the-hill prize fighter who's had an astonishing run lately and who happens to be Matt's father. After a dinner where Foggy is introduced to Matt's father, Jack, the day of the big fight looms. Jack's new manager, a man named Sweeney, but on the streets called The Fixer, has arranged this entire series of events, and on this night wants Murdoch to take a fall. Murdoch, with a shot at the title in his grasp, refuses and takes his opponent to the mat. Later that night, battling Jack, Kid Murdoch lies dead. Matt and Foggy's lawyer does everything by the book, but the case against Sweeney is tossed out of court. As such, Matt's father is not there to see Matt and Foggy graduate, nor is he there to see Matt learn his greatest lesson, that the law is not the same as justice. 
Inspired by neophyte heroes such as the Fantastic Four and Spider-Man, Matt creates himself a costume from his father's old boxing garments and prepares to step into the ring. Bit of Guns N' Roses though. Was that? Get in the ring. <laughs> I only know a few Guns N' Roses songs, one of which is Civil War. Just ask Mum. Oh yeah, we, we do have the Greatest Hits album in the car. Oh, yeah. That's probably where I know most of them from. Entire discography under the stars. Oh yeah. Uh, as with Blue, the titles are all references to other works, except I think in one instance in this. Are these not jazz standards? These are not jazz standards. What a shame. I was very disappointed <laughs> to learn. I'm looking forward to doing Hulk Grey to see what those titles are. <laughs> The championship season was a 1972 play by Jason Miller about a basketball team in Pennsylvania reuniting to celebrate a big win that actually addressed issues of arrested adolescence and bigotry. I've never read it or seen it. I'm sure it's great. Fair enough. As with Blue, each of the issues open with a full-page splash followed by a two-page splash. I mean, there's a pattern with the two-page splash. The two-page splash as well. They're all the multiple dirt yeah there are the two page splashes throughout the entire six issues mm. are one of those uh, sequences where there are multiple daredevils in the panel that show how he's moving and how quickly he's going yeah which I think originally started in Spider-Man comics didn't it mm. didn't Ditko pioneer that in Spider-Man probably it's since been mimicked to death not just by daredevil um, Scott McDaniel used to do it a lot in Nightwing yeah and I'm sure there are other instances it's, it's very um Frank Miller as well this opening sequence where it's all black and white and red yeah the, I'm going to give a shout out to Matt Hollingworth as we go through but pages 1 through 5 all take place in the present day establishing the mood of the piece and the reason for this stroll down memory lane the letter to Karen uh, as Michael's mentioned the logo is straight from the first issue Masthead and the story is dedicated to Stanley Bill Everett and Wally Wood the traditional shorthand for tired and thoughtful is used i.e. Matt has stubble and in a really lovely touch, again, as Michael's already pointed out, the first couple of pages are all monochromatic uh, wash tones, except for Daredevil himself, who is portrayed here in his more traditional Red Devil costume. The fact that he's the only colour element on the page makes the art really strike out, doesn't it? Mm. Exceptionally good pieces of work. Um, see, I get more of a John Romita Jr. vibe from that than I do from Frank Miller. Yeah. Well, but seen as John Romita Jr. now worships at the feet of Frank Miller. Yeah. So. I was stunned about the colour, but. You know, I'm, I'm not really so fond of his uh, Daredevil. Are you not? No. What do you not like about it? I don't, there's, there's something off about him, particularly his incredibly long face. Um, well, Sales Daredevil's a lot bulkier and more muscular than his Spider Man. So, I mean, I suppose he's done that deliberately to differentiate Daredevil from Spider-Man. Because you could put Spider-Man in that exact same sequence of events on the two-page splash. Yeah. Of him leaping, grabbing onto a flagpole, spinning round, glabbing off another flagpole and then swinging off. Because mm. it is a Spider-Man move. Yeah, but I think Tim Sale's more suited to characters like Spider-Man. Off-beat and kooky. Well, if you look at his Daredevil and Hulk and they're all muscly and that... And I've already said that something about him looks off, but take his Batman run and the Spider-Man Blue and they're all lanky and dark and... His Batman wasn't lanky. His Batman was huge. His Batman was covered in shadow and Most long of capes the and yeah. tall horns. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, well, I have thought about doing Long Halloween and Dark Victory simply because I've just enjoyed these so much. Yeah. But you've got the danger of just becoming the Jeff Love Tim Sale podcast. Mm. And another Batman podcast. 
We, we could become the Jeff Loeb Ed McGuinness podcast. We could. <laughs> Just to differentiate, you know. Yeah, and then the Jeff Loeb Jim Lee podcast when we do Hush. <laughs> yeah. So. The Jeff Loeb Show! <laughs> with your host, Jeff Loeb! Trying not to cover Ultimate Spider-Man. Well, you didn't do Ultimate Spider-Man. The cartoon. Oh, sorry, yeah, the cartoon. Yeah, I, I don't... I've not really watched that much. I'm sure it's uh, perfectly entertaining. Uh, page four, a quintessential DD on rooftop shot, made all the more effective again by the monochromatic background. Again, that could be Batman. It's just yeah. missing the cape, isn't it? It could be Superman, unle- uh, Batman, unless it's a little plot twist, and then it's Superman. Hmm. In what way? That annual, no, the Dark Knight over Metropolis we did. Oh, right, yeah, I get it. I was looking at it going, how does he look like Superman? But no, no, yeah, sorry. Yeah. I completely missed you, though. My fault. Joke crashed because of me. Not because of you. You were fine. I've got no memory. Uh, page five, DD visits Fogwell's gym and it's dilapidated and burnt out following a fire. Um, I thought Sale sold that panel. Yeah. I really did. We don't need Daredevil's sense of smell to know what this place smells like. Mm. And the art conveys everything we need to know. I love... It's all burnt out and pitted and the roof's leaking because of the fire there, but the equipment is all still there. Yeah. And there's apartments like, surely somebody would have come along and stole the dumbbells. Mm. Sure, there's nothing wrong with them. But, or maybe they've warped. Is that Craven the Hunter on the poster, though? I was thinking that. There's, um, he walks up to a poster, uh, where I thought he did a really lovely little touch here. He takes his glove off. Yeah. To brush it across the poster, to read the poster with his fingertips, which I thought was a really nice touch. How does he do that if it's all glossy? It may not be a glossy poster. Well, it won't, but... If, if he is, if it is glossy. How he reads stuff with his fingerprints <laughs> is just one of those things that you accept as a Daredevil reader. Yeah. Back in the day, it used to be you could read newsprint because newsprint did leave like a fine... If you rubbed your fingers over it, you could feel the ink. Yeah. And since the advent of laser printers and stuff, there's no way you could read this. Oh, no. But he can. Yeah. And that's just one of those things that you, you turn a blind eye to, no pun intended. Daredevil uh, strokes more books than I do. Yes, Daredevil strokes more books than he does. Yeah. So, so that, you know, it's one of those things you just accept if you read Daredevil <laughs> and go, we don't talk about that and move on. Which is, I'm fine. But yeah, the guy, Kid Murdoch, he's fighting, looks suspiciously like Craven the Hunter. Mm. But he can't be. Unless the fixer... Uh, signed a contract with Craven, <laughs> and even though the fixer died, the Craven still carried out his contract <laughs> because it's all about honour. Yes. All right, fair enough. It's a good way to die. Uh, following the opening couple of pages, we get into the flashbacks, and uh, Matt and Froggy are roomies at law school. Again, Sales sells the dingy small dorm room the duo share. Some nice little touches in this as well. Matt having a pair of presumably his father's boxing gloves on his bookshelf. I thought it was a lovely little touch. Uh, Matt's got a Braille steno... Is it called stenograph typers? For to enable blind people to type. No idea. I thought that was a lovely little touch. My only thing with this... I was going to say the room's not that big because they've crammed two beds into it. But if his bed's there and his bed's there, was the door open? Or does it just open right at the foot of Matt's room, uh, bed? Must do, mustn't it? Mm. Lovely little touch. Matt's, Matt's side of the room's tidy. All these books are neat. There's no clutter. Foggy side of the room, there are shoes all over the place and his books are a mess and his clothes are all over everywhere. Yeah. Again, love a little touch showing the difference between the two of them, mm. which I thought was quite subtle. Loeb also neatly sets up Foggy being a boxing fan, tying him into the story that little bit better, and there's also a nod to his nickname. Neither Matt nor Loeb seem sure exactly why he's nicknamed Foggy. 
Yeah. Because there's a lovely little touch there. I never understood how a man with a keen mind like Franklin Nelson got the nickname Foggy. And that's it. And that's it. And it's like, he just, he's called Foggy, deal with it. Yeah. I always got from that, it's just, it's his school nickname. Nobody even remembers why he's called it anymore. Mm. It's just a nickname that stuck with him. And he doesn't seem bothered. He, he frequently introduces himself as Foggy Nelson. Yeah. Maybe he just doesn't like the name Franklin. Like Pube when we did a um, preacher. Yeah, like Pube. Yes. Oh dear me, pube. Uh, there's a lovely shout out to Jack Murdoch's manager being called the Fixer, and Matt, in retrospect, wondering why neither of them spotted it. Which again, yeah, kind of hangs a little lantern with the name on, like the Fixer. Yeah, why did how naive were we not to spot my dad's winning streak was fixed? Yeah, but name's the Foxer. Yeah, he lets it go. He draws attention and then moves on. Look, we did spot this. Yeah, Matt points out we didn't twig. And just lets it. And I, unless, I like that. Unless he did, but thought he could overcome it. You think? The next scene is dinner with Matt, Jack and Foggy. It's established that Jack's opponent is called Creel, which is a reference to Carl Crusher Creel, who would go on to be villain supreme, the absorbing man, after being given a potion laced with Asgardian ingredients by Loki in Journey into Mystery 114 from March 1965. Creel the Hunter. It still works. It totally does. <laughs> totally works. Uh, this meant Creel could absorb the properties of anything he touches. Mm-hmm. You're aware of Crusher Creel, eh? It's in Secret Wars. I like the Absorbing Man. I think the Absorbing Man's a great villain. Yeah. You know, I remember he got his arm took off and he held it right up close to his arm and then changed back to a human being and it nearly broke his leg. Yeah. Broke his leg. Why would it break his leg? Okay. You know what I mean. Uh, I actually thought that was a really neat retcon because nothing's made of it. Creel was a boxer yeah. in his backstory and if you as a reader know who he is, this is just a nice little Easter egg and this just makes the Marvel Universe that little bit more connected. If you don't know who he is, doesn't matter, does it? Doesn't play into the story, isn't important. It's just one of those nice little, oh, Crusher Creel, right, very good. Mm. I like the little diner scene. I, I liked um, the dialogue between Foggy and his dad, and Matt's dad. I thought it was pretty neat. Yeah, the dialogue's really good. Um, it's especially seen as it's, it is Foggy that's holding the conversation with his dad about boxing. Yeah. Matt's just sitting back and letting his, his best mate have a good time, isn't he? Mm. I like that because Matt's into boxing this entire series is one big boxing metaphor yeah and it always makes sense to me that Matt as Daredevil would be a boxer in a fight rather than a an athletic fighter even though he is an athlete his fighting style would be one punching you down yeah was my interpretation of him I could be wrong uh, there are some subtleties set up by Jeff Loeb in the scene in the diner Matt smells the cigars on the money clip his father has and recognise it as Sweeney's. We also learn that Jack's a southpaw, which is not an advantage for a boxer. Something else he has in common with Rocky Balboa. Mm-hmm. Uh, in addition to being um, a leg breaker in other tellings of the story, which Rocky also was. Yeah. Which is another boxing noir staple. The day of the boxing match, Sweeney tells Jack to stay down and flat out states the rest of Jack's matches were fixed. The implication here that Jack was not aware of this. Mm. He counters Creel with a hard right to the jaw, refusing to throw the fight. We will be referring to this later, that Jack does not know about this. Mm. There's a bittersweet element to the scene immediately following the euphoric victory of the fight, as Jack gives his robe to Matt, announcing his decision to retire. Yeah. 
Is there an unspoken nod here that Jack knew his days were numbered? Yeah, I read it like that. Is that how you, I read it like that as well? Yeah. I've just I brought the cardinal rule here. I didn't throw the fight. Mm. And um, especially the way Sweeney's bodyguards show up at the end and the way it's played, the door opens, they're framed in the doorway and the rest of the panel's black. Hmm. I'm glad you read that the same way I did. Yeah. I read that as Jack knew what was going to happen. Especially when he was getting so hyped up about a shot of the title and then just quitting. Yeah. Yes. Good, 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 good. I got that as well. Uh, Slade is eating pistachio nuts, a plot point that will come up again and again throughout the story. Mm-hmm. The moment where Matt wakes up as the gunshot that kills his father rings out is hugely satisfying on a dramatic note. Even Matt acknowledges in story that this may be his memory cheating on him in the narration boxes, but it works within the context of the issue. We don't see Jack get shot. Mm-hmm. We just see his dead body lying in a pool of blood as the coroner puts tape around the body. I thought that was a very brave, dramatic choice. And Sale, once again, only uses colour for the blood and Jack's body and Matt, who is trying to get past the police cordon to have a look at his dad's body. Is this Sale's subtle way of visually depicting Matt's radar scent? It could be. Because it starts on the previous page. When he wakes up, he's the only thing in colour. And then when he leaps out of the window to use the fire escape, Mm. again, he's the only thing in colour. It's certainly a different way of depicting the radar sense than we've seen before. Yeah. And a lot different to how they're doing it now in Mark Wade's run. I mean, again, that could be me reading something into this that that's not there. It works, though. But it does, yeah, it works a treat, I think, Mm. that the colour bits are the bits that he's focused on. Yeah. which is his dad's dead body and the blood and the pistachio nuts that surround his body mm. they are also in colour well, I like how we don't see it just because we're following Matt and mm. nothing else it's his yeah. memories so obviously he wouldn't have seen his own dad's death Yeah. so no yeah it's a good point that I hadn't considered that Matt senses the pistachio nuts around Jack's dead body and this is followed by an incredibly effective three-quarter length panel where a weeping Matt tells his father he loves him. The word balloons are much larger than the text within, which gives off a very unsettling vibe when reading the page. Kudos to Tim Sale, though. Mm. thought that was very well done. The courtroom scene, where Jack's case is thrown out of court, shows Matt's invective. As in the middle of a crowded courtroom, he accuses the judge of being bought. Yeah. Which is either incredibly brave... Or very, very stupid for somebody who's practising to be a lawyer. Yeah. But... You know the guy defending um, the fixer? Yeah. Did you not read... You know um, the lawyer in The Simpsons? Oh! Did you read him like him? Because I did. (laughs) I didn't, but I do now. (laughs) Um, I can't even remember his name, but I know what you mean. Adam would know his name, wouldn't he? Probably, yeah. Oh, I don't remember the lawyer's name in The Simpsons. But yes, now that you've pointed that out, that's how I read Because he is a shyster. Yeah. Isn't he? Uh, as is the norm with these things, Sweeney tells Matt not to get in the ring unless he knows he can win. Mm. Do you think these words are going to come back to bite him? Yeah. Could be. Could be. Matt's graduation established him as class valedictorian, which follows later stories that establish Foggy was helped considerably by Matt in his studies and a discussion about the name of their new law firm and how they go about hiring a secretary, which was a good way of getting Karen Page into this first issue without actually having her in it, Mm. which she isn't. So the entire focus of the story is not in the first issue. No. Which is a neat trick if you can pull it off. Mm. Uh, The final scene which goes over a couple of pages, is Matt sewing himself a costume out of his dad's old boxing stuff. So you're getting uh, 
Ant May to do it for him. Instead of getting Ant May to do it for him. Yeah. Ant May didn't sew the Spider-Man costume. <laughs> Should have known who he was. Unless he made a closer eyes. Sale actually makes this much maligned first costume work. Yeah. The final splash of Dee Dee's hero pose every comic should have one, is detailed in depth in the supplementary material at the back of the book, showing how many drafts this one page went through, and is a wonderful look at the artistic process. Sometimes they're my favourite parts of the book. Yeah. There's shots of the art and everything at the back. Absolutely blind. I, I, I like the yellow costume. I've always preferred it. Really? Yeah. I think it's cack. No, I've always preferred it. It's just better to look at. There's more to it. Like, we keep complaining about the new Superman costume for just being bland. There's none of colour on there to separate it. Mm. That's my problem with the Red Daredevil costume. Yeah, it works in his character, but there's not much to look at, really. See, I think it works with Daredevil just being Ted top to toe in red. Mm. Whereas, I think, the, the new 52 Superman costume, there is a problem with the midsection. It just, like, it just looks a bit bland. Yeah, I don't know, because I'll buy Batman all in one bodysuit, won't I? Yeah. It's very strange. But no, I've, I've always preferred this. Maybe it's just because it's something different. Yeah. yeah. I suppose so. See, I only ever read Daredevil from him. He was in the red costume. Yeah. Like I mentioned in the introduction, this the fact that he wore a yellow and red or yellow and black in the beginning was largely forgotten for decades. Yeah. It just was never mentioned that he wore a different costume. So, yeah, okay. Structurally similar to Spider-Man Blue, in that the impetus for the recollections is the death of a loved one, Loeb and Sale set about streamlining and reinterpreting Matt Murdock's early days and his motivations for a lawyer to become a vigilante, playing with the idea that the law doesn't always deliver justice and the old maxim that justice is blind. Interestingly, Loeb eschews the origin in this first issue. Matt is already blind and in his final year of law school when the story begins, allowing Loeb and Sale to concentrate on establishing why Matt became Daredevil without rehashing how he gained his enhanced senses and echolocation radar. This has its advantages and disadvantages in that the story can get you rolling straight away, but there is a slight sticking point that Loeb doesn't explain how Matt can do all this stuff, and any new reader may be a little bit lost. It's a small point, but this is one of those instances where I think a simple expository thought balloon would not have gone amiss. Sales art, as ever, is exemplary. What did you think of the first issue, Michael? Um, I thought it was a pretty good, actually, but since you pointed out that the whole point of the story isn't in the first issue, it mm. kind of knocks it down a bit. No, well, he has to tell the story from the beginning... Yeah. So he does have to establish who his dad was and why he and Foggy set up this law firm mm. instead of going on to becoming high-powered lawyers working for a prestigious company. That's not what they want to do. Working for William Shatner. Exactly. Yeah. They want to help the little man. Mm. So they opened this two-bit place. Well, I'll be honest, when I was reading this, I completely forgot about Karen Page being the whole point of the story. I was just like, oh, it's another Daredevil story. Neat. And then it came to the end... And it started being about her again. So, oh, yeah, yeah, I forgot it was about her. Well, that's, I will address that at the end of the episode. Karen Page doesn't have the necessary romantic weight that Gwen Stacy does. Well, when you're reading Spider-Man Blue, you know it's about Gwen mm. Stacy all the way through. But Gwen Stacy's shadow has loomed large over Spider-Man history. Again, as we discussed in that episode, rightly or wrongly, yeah. her death has cast a huge shadow over Spider-Man history. Whereas Karen Page... Karen Page like, is... Daredevil remains mostly unknown. Yeah, I mean, again, we'll get to it, but Karen Page, yeah, she's largely unknown. You can read huge swords of Daredevil... And she won't be mentioned. She won't be mentioned and she's not important. Well, I think that adds more to the story, really. That she was his first love that he lost very early on. Yeah. Well, Guardian Devil was when she got killed, but yeah. Alright. Um, 
the return of continuity and nitpicks. <laughs> have you missed it? I have actually. As with Blue, this section is not in any way us dissing on the story, which I think is excellent. Do you think it's excellent for the yeah. most part? Rather simply, for fun, we're going to point out where Loeb and Sale deviate from the original text. We have not included in this the other famous Daredevil origin series, Man Without Fear by Frank Miller and John Romita Jr., although I did read it for purposes of research, and I'll mention it a little bit at the end. Uh, As we felt Yellow took its inspiration from the original six issues of Daredevil, not any subsequent retellings, that's what we've referred to. Again, Loeb's get-out-of-jail-free card is the same as in Blue. These are Matt's recollections of events rather than the way things were. Still nitpicking is part of the fun of being a comics reader, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Certainly one of my pride and joy. Uh, Issue number one of Yellow is essentially an adaptation of the first 14 pages of Daredevil issue one by Stanley and Bill Everett with art assist from Steve Ditka. Yellow is dedicated to Stanley, Bill Everett and Wally Wood, the writer and artist of the first six issues. Rather oddly skipping poor Joe Orlando who drew issues two, three and four. He's just ignored. (laughs) Poor Joe. I feel a bit sorry for him, aren't you? By skipping the early days and joining the story with Matt already in law school, we don't learn that Matt's childhood nickname was Daredevil, nor do we learn that Matt, in his frustration, trained himself to be a top athlete even before the accident that robbed him of his sight. We mentioned above that Jack was seemingly unaware that his fights were fixed. In the original issue, Jack takes the job with the fixer even though he knows he's a bad egg of a kind he's vowed to stay away from, simply because he needs the money to put Matt through law school. This does slightly change his motivations from the original, but in both versions, Jack is unaware the fights are fixed. In the original, he must have some indication that he's not kosher, though. Because mm. all his life he's stayed away from somebody like the fixer, and then that issue he only does the job because he needs the money. Yeah. So he must have known something wasn't right. In Daredevil 1, Jack is fighting Dynamite Davis, not Crusher Creel. Not a change that really matters in the grand scheme of things. And Matt's mother is clearly said to be dead in issue 1 of Daredevil. Nobody tell Frank Miller. Because otherwise that would completely negate Daredevil born again. And he would trample all over that in Man Without Fear. Okay. He would. Trust me. Why is she alive? Yes, and she makes an appearance in Man Without Fear. And in Man Without Fear, his dad's a leg breaker. So his dad's not innocent. Fair enough. So, changing of motivations by Mr. Miller. All told, Jeff Loeb didn't change a great deal from Daredevil number one, rather simply streamlining the story, allowing it room to breathe, and removing any extraneous elements. He successfully compresses the sequence of events from Daredevil number one to make more sense. Daredevil issue one starts in 1950, with Matt's age given as eight years old, giving Matt's birth year as 1942. The rest of Daredevil number one is quite confused in terms of time frame. Jack signs his contract with the Fixer before Matt's accident, and before he graduates high school. Jack's rise to the top of the ranks, therefore, must take an awful lot longer in the original issues, as Matt is in law school when Jack is killed. And if the events of later in the book take place in the present day, and there's nothing to indicate that they don't, it's now 1964 and Matt is 22 years of age. Yellow gives Jack's age as being 40, so I doubt the fixer really waited until Jack was 45 before he wanted a return on his investment. Yellow has Matt already be in law school when Jack signs with the Fixer, although this doesn't change Jack's motivations. He may have had to pay Matt's fees annually or by semester. Jack is killed in Daredevil number one, and within three panels, Matt and Foggy are graduating. Loeb extends this, although we aren't given a time frame, with Sweeney and Slade's trial occurring between Jack's death and graduation, which could have been 
a considerable amount of time, mm-hmm. given that the wheels of justice turn slowly. Or not at all. Oh, not at all. Mm-hmm. That's very true in this case. Uh, Yellow Part 2 is called The Measure of a Man. The cover is Matt, or Jack, it's not clear, but I presume it's Matt, punching the gym bag at Fogwells in black and white, whilst, colour, whilst in colour above, sorry, Daredevil punches some goon's lights out. Again, the hardcover has the rough pencils, which I actually prefer. Mm. I like seeing the pencils of things. Do you like that one? I do, actually. Good cover, that. I like the use of black and white and colour. Yeah. And the wash effect that apparently was all handled by Matt Hollingsworth and the colouring. Because who does it? I know Tim Sale does these watercolours, but does he do that all in black and whites and greys? And then it Matt explains it at the back. Matt Hollingsworth, yeah, he does it all in grayscale. And Matt Hollingsworth has added all that in uh, in Photoshop when he's coloured it. Which is, he's done a really good job, hasn't he? Mm. Matt Hollingsworth's work in this book is, is exemplary. The issue two, using his training and special abilities, Matt takes the name Daredevil and uses those senses to track down the men who killed his father. He convinces Slade, the trigger man, to confess and then chases the fixer himself into the New York subway system, where Dee Dee's relentless pursuit of him causes him to die of a heart attack. Elsewhere, Foggy and Matt have opened Nelson and Murdoch, attorneys at law, and Foggy has just employed their new secretary, Karen Page. Not a lot happened in this one. Oh, no. It was one of my favourites, though, wasn't it? It's a good one. It's an excellent issue. Uh, Measure of Man was the earliest published works of the sermons of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in 1959. It is also the title of Sidney Poitier's autobiography. Songs by Clay Aitken, Elton John, Jack Ingram, Kevin Sharp, and For Him. And the title of a 1989 episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. So which one of those uh, songs are we going to have in this? Uh, the Elton John one is the song at the end of Rocky V. Is it? Yeah. I don't know any of the others. Maybe we should put that one in there. I don't know who For Him and Clay Aitken are, to is, be honest is with you. For Him, like... Sounds like a crappy boy band, doesn't it? Or is it not him, the band Him? No, it's not Villy Varlow there's, and Him. There's, there's four of them. No, it's not him. Bam Margera's favourite band is it's, one of those four of them. No, it's not them. No. I, I think For Him sound like a crappy boy band. Yeah. That's my, my thinking. Before InSync. Yeah. <laughs> and after the Backstreet Boys. Yeah. Page one, Daredevil introduces himself and the crowd laugh at him. Given his outfit, that's quite understandable. <laughs> Yellow strikes fear into nobody's heart. Mm. We'll be mentioning that again when we do Nightwing Year One. <laughs> How little yellow strikes fear into people's hearts. Uh, page two through three is a wonderful counterpoint to the last issue's two-page spread, whereas we are... Whereas there, we saw the present-day Daredevil in his much better Red Devil costume perform acrobatic leaps over two pages of sale greatness. Here we see the younger Daredevil clad in his red and yellow costume performing a similar move where he uses his billy club to knock out opponents whilst kicking the bejesus out of others. The club bounces off walls and lights before ending up in Dee Dee's hands in a wonderfully choreographed sequence. It's a testament to Sale's skill that, like Perez with Robin's costume, it makes this yellow and red thing really work. Yeah. It's a really good sequence, that, isn't it? Absolutely top-notch. The narration boxes are Loeb specialty. Fill in the blanks from issue one. We learn of Dee Dee's training and how he kept his working out a secret from his father who didn't want him ending up like him, presumably a washed-out prize fighter. Rather sweetly, Matt thinks his dad is the greatest man who ever lived, but, and this is a big but seems to believe his dad must have known the fights were fixed. Mm. Did you get that as well? I'm, I'm not sure, actually. It was a nice, ambiguous moment, and I liked that the script never answered 
this question, but he says, I never really thought about it until now, but my dad and I were quite the poor. He tried to keep secret what he was really doing with the fixer, I guess to protect me, and I tried to keep secret on my training, I guess to protect him. Right. To me, that implied Matt knew that he was the fights were fixed. Maybe it's another one of those, what we're saying about Superior Spider-Man. We know, but the characters don't. So maybe he might just assume that he did, because he found out he did. Yeah, it's possible. Yeah, it is possible that now Matt knows his fights were fixed, he may have thought his dad always knew. Because mm. how could he be so naive to think a 40-year-old could pull all that off? Yeah. But certainly he must think he didn't throw the last fight, obviously. Yeah. So maybe that's what redeems him in Matt's eyes. That's perfectly okay. Uh, Fedora-hatted goons with guns open fire on Daredevil in a panel that may be one of my favourites in the entire issue. Yeah. I have no idea. It's Slade and um, the Fixer. But it's just great. He does look a bit like Indiana Jones, though, doesn't he? But I think that's the colour of his fedora. Mm. Page 7. DD catches up with Slade, the man who actually pulls the trigger on his dad, in a wonderful page. The page has three panels that fill the width of it. Every panel is exactly the same, with the exception of certain subtle things. In the top panel, we're looking at the gym, the boxing ring on the right, the entrance, and the other gym paraphernalia scattered around. Daredevil enters on the previous page, swinging in on a set of gym rings that hang from the roof. On the page, the rings continue to swing from panel to panel. Daredevil lets Sweeney, a.k.a. the Fixer, run away, leaving the door swinging across the three panels, whilst Daredevil punches out Slade. There's a lovely little physiological touch to the narration boxes, as Daredevil believes he may have been momentarily possessed by his dad when he punches out Slade. Even more intriguing, Dee Dee takes Slade's gun off him and points it in his face, telling him to testify. Yeah. He doesn't say, or else. No, I like the use of the gun. Heavily implied, though, isn't it? Yeah. When you shove a, a, a gun in somebody's mouth. Which uh, is what Daredevil does, though. Yeah. It cracks me up a little because I'm like, testify, more. <laughs> it's basically what he does. Yeah. He puts a gun in his head and he forces him to testify. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm pretty sure that would get him disbarred. Uh, I just like that, that um, splash page always like testify yeah it's a full page shot of Daredevil's face just holding the gun yeah and that's all he says testify which it's a great absolutely fantastic sequence lawyer talk he's giving away his secret identity he is he's totally giving that it also differentiates him I think from characters that he's similar to Batman would not do this and Spider-Man Spider-Man would never do this well not sure anymore well maybe superior Spider-Man would Mm. but Previously, Spider-Man would not have done Especially when, he's even mentioned in this, he is ripping off Spider-Man. Yeah. Which is a little subtle point that I quite liked, how he's yeah. comparing himself to Spider-Man because of that. Yeah, because the early issues by Stan and Co. were, in the same way the X-Men was a knockoff of the Fantastic Four. Yeah. Daredevil was just, this was a success before, let's do it again. So yeah, I love that as well, these constant references to Spider-Man. Yeah. I thought they were quite clever. Uh, the next sequence in the book is absolutely magnificent. Having threatened Slade, Daredevil takes off after Sweeney, trailing him for three blocks and down into the subway by following the smell of his cigars, which I just thought was sublime. The narration really puts the reader in Matt's head as he hears the money in Sweeney's pockets rattle like cymbals, practically tastes Sweeney's salty sweat, and almost wretches when Sweeney wets himself in panic. It's glorious and more than a little bit gross at the same time. Yeah. Is what I thought. Um, what's not gross is sales art, which is gorgeous. New York is wonderful. The subway magnificent. And Dee Dee's casual torture of Sweeney 
is wonderfully depicted, despite the fact that Dee Dee is almost completely depicted as being in shadow. Yeah, there's another man watching them as well. Isn't that a copper? There's a man there. There is, yeah. Just watching this happen. I don't know how much he will be watching it, because they do disappear into the tunnel. Yeah. So he may not have seen a lot of it. I presume he's just a guy waiting for a train, isn't he? Mm. I would have thought. Um, it does beg the question, how culpable is Matt in this guy's death? Yeah, because he doesn't do anything He doesn't do anything to him. He doesn't lay a hand on him. But it's him being... But he caused this. Yeah. He caused this heart attack. I can't say I feel sorry for him, Mm. but I certainly think that Matt's culpable in this guy's death. But is it not the same thing with comparing him to Spider-Man again? Where he didn't do something to the guy who killed Uncle Ben, but he still caused his death. Yeah, but in the original comics, the guy who killed Uncle Ben doesn't die. Does he not? No, he gets arrested. Right. He turns him over to the police. Right, because I'm going off the You're movie, going off yeah. the film, yeah. Whereas in this, Matt very definitely causes this guy's heart attack. Mm. I think. But he does it in such a way that it'll never hold up in court. Yeah. Because he's a lawyer! <laughs> There's a wonderful, fully human moment in the subway sequence. Daredevil realises that Sweeney is having a heart attack and he's going to die. Never does he wish he wouldn't die. Yeah. Only that he doesn't die before Daredevil gets a chance to hit him. Mm. I totally bought that. And like I said, there's, there is an argument that Daredevil caused Sweeney's heart attack, but Matt feels absolutely no remorse. But you can tell on that two-page spread, though, the look of disappointment on him. Yeah, he's You sure don't even have to see him, but... Is, I didn't get to punch him, Dad. Mm. And it's one of them... I suppose, you know, you wouldn't feel guilty about that, would you? Mm. Fair play. Uh, the police arrive, and this time when he tells people his name is Daredevil, nobody laughs. Mm. Which is an absolutely wonderful sequence. Even with what he's wearing. Because that makes it look like he's wearing thigh-high boots. Yeah. Not a good look if you're not a pirate. <laughs> uh, the back end of the issue... Foggy's interviewing candidates for the role of secretary, which is hysterical. Yeah, I thought it was funny. Very, in the passage of yeah, time as well. Very funny sequence, absolutely, yeah. Projectile vomiting was my Yeah, favorite. it's all brilliant. I thought this was all brilliant. Uh, Foggy deals with people who can only work three out of five days. Chain smokers and single mums with vomiting babies, which was hysterical that the baby vomited on him. I love the line. Projectile vomiting. There's something you don't see every day as he's, as he's mopping off his shirt. Yeah. <laughs> Now the repeated um, dialogue again, will yeah. that be a problem? Yeah, and uh, the repeated panels. Again, it's absolutely fantastic. Sale has the same panel repeated as he's done before, but with subtle details changes. It's a glorious sunny morning, and the first panel, Foggy, is well-dressed. By the middle, he's removed his suit jacket, and by the last, he's removing his top due to vomit. Uh, the passage of time, as Michael has mentioned, is wonderfully shown, simply through the colours, the lengthening shadows in the office and the sun setting. Just outside the window. Absolutely wonderful sequential storytelling from Mr. Tipsell. Absolutely fantastic. Which is followed again on the next page of the uh, yeah, repeated panels. Again, the repeated panels with only subtle things changing. He's good at that, isn't he? Mm. Absolutely wonderful, Adam. And it doesn't seem like Bendis repeated panels. No, because it's it's progressing the story. And it's not Bendis repeated panels. That got so irritating. Yeah. When, um, who was it? Who did the Bendis? Uh, was it Michael Lark? 
Boy. And just the repeated, the oh, use of repeated panels, yeah. yeah, and the use of repeated panels that were zoomed in and then pulled back, mm. and it just got so annoying. Here, it's Foggy's doing different things in each panel, and it's used to progress the story. Yeah, it's not just used because the artist couldn't be bothered drawing another face. It's it's really good in comparison to bad sequential oh, art. Subtlety here where Karen Page is in it, you can see a hand there and a shadow's on the yeah, door. Yeah, on the door. Uh, and Foggy's just passed out on his desk. Yeah. I love that he's got a baseball on his desk. Which was in, which was in his dorm yeah. room, yeah. Absolutely fantastic. Never explained why he's got a baseball. No, maybe he likes boxing and baseball. Yeah, well, maybe he's just a sports fan Bob, generally. Boxball. Which I quite like. Baseboxing. Baseboxing. Yeah. That's a fantastic sport. Uh, the introduction to Karen is actually quite low key. As Michael's mentioned in her initial appearance, we only see a hand. And then on the final page of the issue, she's not the primary focus of the frame. She's not given a va-va-va-voom outfit or even a memorable first line. Yeah. It's actually quite down-to-earth and a little more believable because of it. She's just in the middle of the office, Foggy introduces her to Matt. Mm -hmm. Simple as that. Pretty damn good issue. Were I to be churlish, I could criticise for being incredibly decompressed yeah. as you could tell from the synopsis but it's just so beautiful to look at so well paced so eminently readable with Loeb bringing lots of interesting touches of his own that I just can't bring myself to be negative about it mm. it's the reason the phrase waiting for the trade was invented though yeah. isn't it sales are is wonderful sequential storytelling unlike some people that we've covered recently Mm. who may be fine artists, but the sequential <laughs> storytelling sucks. Yeah, it's a neat little noir story. Yeah, it? it's absolutely fantastic. Absolutely brilliant. Continuity <laughs> and nitpicks! I love that you like that. I do, actually. Uh, essentially, this is just the last nine pages of Daredevil number one, expanded upon and clarified. The fight between Daredevil and the Fixer's goons is the same but different. In Daredevil number one, Sweeney and Slade both make a run from the gym into the subway, and Sweeney's heart attack is much more a product of him being overweight and out of shape, rather than being indirectly Daredevil's fault. In neither version is Daredevil particularly broken up. Mm. Daredevil is also a lot rougher on Slade in this story, yellow, beating him and sticking a gun in his face, whereas Daredevil number one has a much more pat ending, with Slade just confessing in front of the police after Daredevil lies about Sweeney turning him in. Uh, Karen's employment is handled in one panel on page 13 of issue one. Fair enough. So no big hoopla with the introduction that's of Karen Page. That's how important she was. That's how important she was in Daredevil number one, yeah. Uh, and that's it for continuity nitpicks. Mm-hmm. Part three is called Stepping Into the Ring. The cover has Foggy and Matt shaking hands in front of Nelson and Murdoch's new offices with a typical New York cityscape in the background. Daredevil again poses symbolically against the skyline. I think I'm going to have to agree with you. They are fine yeah. as pieces of artwork. They're not as good as the blue covers. They're not as eye-catching. They're not as grabbing. Mm. Which is funny because the blue covers don't really have a lot on them. Uh. Still, you what know. What they do have is pretty damn good. What they do have is pretty damn good, yeah. The Fantastic Four dropped by Nelson and Murdoch after Matt was recommended by a member of Mr. Fantastic's close associates at Columbia Law. To celebrate their first clients, Foggy instigates a works night out with Matt and Karen at the Marlin Cafe, a college hangout frequented by Matt and Foggy as Utes. Upon arrival, Matt squares up against a group of bigoted college jocks and he and Foggy challenge them to a game of pool. With his unerring radar sense, Matt wipes the floor with the bullies and as payback, they confront him in an alleyway later 
outside the side of the bar, accusing him of not actually being blind. Again, Matt wipes the floor with them. The next day, Matt visits Slade in prison. Despite testifying against Sweeney, Slade has still been given the death sentence by a crusading DA that everybody wants to believe in. Matt's investigations have led him to the conclusion that there was somebody behind the fixer and Matt wants to know who. Slade refuses to talk for fear of his kids being hurt. Back at the office, Matt walks in as Foggy is interviewing a woman called Grace who is blackmailed for something by someone. She's quite vague and leaves before saying any more. Matt knows she's lying about something. Later that day, a man enters the offices of Nelson and Murdoch concerned about scurrilous and libelous lies that may have reached their attention due to Grace. He refuses to give his real name, only his business alias, The Owl. Stepping into the ring is a novel by Nicole Johnson about a woman diagnosed with breast cancer. I see the link. <laughs> Fair enough. The issue again opens with a single-page splash page and a double-page splash, this time a close-up of The Thing, with a spectacular facial expression as he sticks his head through the window of the Nelson and Murdoch law offices, destroying it and half the wall in the process, followed by a double-page look at the FF hovering outside in the Fantastica. Sale, again, does an excellent job. The people outside are all excited to see the Fantastic Four in contrast to their contempt of Spider-Man or their apparent disinterest in Daredevil in the last issue when he chased Sweeney into the subway. In a nice touch, Sue has an invisible force field around the bricks that the thing has dislodged so they don't fall into the street below. The thing's ass hangs out the window and the human torch mocks that this is the thing's best side. Yeah. Absolutely wonderful. When are Loeb and Sale going to do a Fantastic Four one of these? I don't know, but this bit was pretty hilarious. It was hysterical, wasn't it? He sticks his head in the window. Yeah. Absolutely brilliant. That was my favourite bit. The bricks. Sue catching the bricks in an invisible force field. I, I like to read dialogue. Uh, actually, Ben, when I asked you to get out and see if you could find Mr. Murdoch, I didn't think you would take me literally. They do have a front entrance. Mm. I love that he's bending down to say, and it's here. Yeah. You dumbass. Very good. I like, everybody loves the Fantastic Four. Yeah. That's what I like about that. In the Marvel Universe, where some heroes are distrusted and hated by people they're sworn to protect, the Fantastic Four, probably Captain America, loved by everybody. Yeah. Don't mind that at all. The next page has a nice panel <clears throat> where the thing is still stuck in the window and Reed stretches into the next window at the side. Also, while he finally gets back into the Fantastica, half the window is still stuck on his head and to alleviate his boredom, Johnny is juggling fireballs. Yeah. Again, absolutely wonderful handling of the Fantastic Four in a very, very short amount of time. I like how the window literally does have a thing-shaped hole in it. Yeah, it's absolutely brilliant. Like in the old Bugs Bunny cartoons when they run through walls. Absolutely great. And I love that Reed's like, send us a bill for the damage. Mm. I don't know when that gets fixed, but by the next issue, there's no wrong with it. Mm. So I like the dialogue between um, Matt and Reed as well. Reed calls him Mr. Murdoch. Mm. And uh, Matt says, it's Matt. How's that, son? When Reed can't be much older than... Oh, well, yeah, Reed will be in his early 30s, won't he? Yeah. So, yeah, he is a bit old. I prefer to be called Matt. Mr. Murdoch sounds so... Mr. Murdoch. We used to take the mick out of him for Which later. Foggy and Karen take the mick out of him later. And later on, Matt calls Reed Sir, and Reed says, it's Reed. Mm. Which is nice, because it shows that Mr. Fantastic isn't a knob yeah. in this particular issue. And I love... He dances with Karen. 
and to celebrate their first clients. Well, that's one of the little... Karen sues him for sexual harassment later on. Yeah, of course. <laughs> that's one of the subtle bits in the story that goes over Matt's head, because it has to go over Matt's head, where you can see Foggy getting an interest for Karen, yeah. which just goes over Matt's head. Well, that's something interesting about this story. Matt, at no point throughout this entire issue, acknowledges Franklin's fondness for Karen. Yeah. Whereas in the original issues, that's why he stayed away, because Foggy was interested in it. No, I, I read it as well as Matt also doesn't show any interest in it. Daredevil does, but Matt doesn't. Until later on. Yeah. At the very end. Mm. And then that's quite, aww. But we'll get there, lovely listener. We're not there yet. Uh, this does throw up the issue of timeline, again, because you know I'm fascinated by stuff like that. Yeah. In Daredevil number one, Matt was in high school, then college, and even in yellow number one, no mention is made of law school, simply college. Here, though, Reed clearly says Matt, and by extension Foggy, went to Columbia Law, a real law school located on 116th Street in New York. Presumably they went there after high school, but that's still a five-year timeline. Probably best not to think about that too much, isn't it? Like the Robins. Yeah. Best not thinking about it. Um, another of Sale's two-page Daredevil leaps across town spreads follows. It's as good as all his others. With Dee Dee musing about whether taking your clothes off in an alleyway is legal or not. Yeah. <laughs> Which was quite funny. Mm. <laughs> and I like how he says he takes his mask off last. In case somebody sees him. Yeah. He's still taking his mask off, though, isn't he? People are going to see him, they're not going to see Seems fair enough. It does actually make sense, that because how many times did we see Peter Parker land in an alleyway and take his mask off first? Yeah. That's actually a very subtle thing, that. I did yeah. not notice that. The yeah. Green Goblin certainly noticed. Yeah, well, the Green Goblin dulled his spider sense, didn't he? Um... The scene in the bar is, he- is hella amusing and very cute. Foggy has racked up a pool game and challenged a bunch of college-age jerks to a match. When Matt arrives, they start spewing out a torrent of blind and Helen Keller jokes, which Matt counters by A, beating them with a series of trick shots, and B, reeling off a series of Helen Keller jokes himself. A cute scene reminiscent of a sequence in the 1986 Steve Martin movie Roxanne, itself a modern update of Serrano de Bergerac, where when somebody calls Martin's character Big Nose... Martin insults the guy for a full five minutes of screen time for his lack of originality and reels off a series of much funnier gags about somebody's large protuberance. Mm. Best bit in the film. Very, very funny. Helen Keller is, of course, a prominent author and civil rights activist, famous for being the first deaf-blind person to earn a Bachelor of Arts degree. Fair I love the little um, opening of the bar scene. Were you thinking, it's a comic, of course the people in the bar are going to be interesting... And of course, you have a crazy cat lady. Yeah, crazy and cat lady. <laughs> your little French poet. Yeah, just sat there doing the Brongo de Existence, the Brongo no Vives, the Cigar of Viviendo. I love that there's what's in case of hangover break glass. Yeah, they're all, they're all Italian, aren't they? Not French. Is it not Spanish? Si, gracias. That's Spanish, not Italian. Maybe Spanish then. I get your point. Three different languages, you know. Yeah, because Bonita and Chica it's Spanish. They're all pretty similar. <laughs> and that's the European audience <laughs> switching off. <laughs> um, this the alleyway scene that follows this is, is very interesting the college jocks wait till Matt's alone before calling him out not even wanting to challenge Foggy and Matt together rather waiting to pick on the one who may be blind yeah they deserve everything Matt does to them mm, and that panel as well is very similar to when um, the fixer and Slade came for his dad yeah in Matt's silhouetted in not the doorway but the alleyway entrance mm. all in silhouette and the guys approaching from out of the alleyway um, I loved his line I don't like Helen Keller jokes or the people that tell them I thought that was funny 
Mm. I thought that was an absolutely killer line. And then Matt proceeds to kick the crap out of him. And they deserve it, don't they? Quite frankly. Don't have any sympathy for bullies. (laughs) Sorry, but I don't. Uh, The scene in the prison is interesting. Slade testified and still got the death penalty. Yeah. So that was a bit rough, (laughs) to be honest with you. I thought the point of testifying was to gain something for yourself. Mm. Is that not the point? Well, they say that he wasn't he just chosen randomly to make an example. What the DA it? just chose this case randomly to make it? Oh, okay, that, that's I, how that. I read it. He wasn't anything in particular; it was just out of random, and it just so happened to fall upon this guy. Yeah, all right, fair enough. I'll go with that. Um, Slade does say Jack agreed to take a dive, which isn't true. At least yeah. not from the reader's point of view. If he was lying to wind Matt up, then Matt doesn't give away that he catches him in a lie. Mm. But. If Jack never knew that he was being set up, then he didn't agree to take a fall, did he? But it does make sense that he did as well. Yeah. Because... Certainly in the last battle he's told to take a fall. He yeah. doesn't agree to it. No, but there's the thing where, if you choose to read it like this, after the conversation with Matt and Fogger, he decides to make them proud and not take the fall. Right. So yeah, I guess it works either way. Yeah, okay. Fair enough. There's a whole mystery angle added to the death of Jack Murdoch, not mentioned at all in the original text. Whilst the origin itself is unchanged, the implication that the fixer was working for somebody else opens up a whole other can of worms. Mm. Unless the appearance of Grace is going to play into the story later, she doesn't really serve much of a purpose in this issue. It's not spelt out what she did, but that she did terrible things to protect her husband. Did she kill someone? Do pawn? What? <laughs> Whatever it was, the owl has proof or pictures of it. Again, they did bring this back later, but it's still a very ambiguous story point. Mm. And it's best left to the reader to decide, like, did Jack really know that he was supposed to take a fall? I think this could do with explaining who this woman was and what her relationship was with the owl. Which it doesn't, does it? Even no. when she comes back in issue five. That was very confusing, though, because even when she does show up again, she doesn't say anything, she just runs off and that's it. Yeah, there was no real purpose to her. No. At all. I didn't I didn't get her purpose within the story. The Owl, a.k.a. Leland Owlsley, will, despite his rather lame introduction in Daredevil number three, become a force to be reckoned with on the New York crime scene. Leland Owlsley. Leland Owlsley, a.k.a. The Owl. That totally works. In a world where somebody's called Edward Nigma, that totally works. And a guy called Otto Octavius would get eight arms. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Um, I'm undecided on this one, mm. to be honest with you. It's, it's no less entertaining than the others. The art's gorgeous, the dialogue crisp. My problem is very little of this is to be found in the original text, which is fine to a degree... Because first issue aside, the opening six issues of Daredevil are pretty hard going. Yeah. My issue, therefore, is does this replace the original? It does fix a continuity problem Mm. with FF number 39, where Matt was still working as the Fantastic Four's lawyer despite being canned in Daredevil number two, and the owl is handled masterfully being a creepy scumbag from the get-go. And whilst this is better in every way than the original issues. I, I do wonder if there was a big kerfuffle over this from Die Hard Daredevil fans. Well, is it not an extra reading thing or an alternate story like all the multiple Superman tellings are? Is it a secret origin? No, because it's not like Spider-Man Blue were... They didn't change enough in Spider-Man Blue that it supplants the original. But it wasn't a retelling of the origin. 
No, that was a retelling of Batman, Batman, Spider-Man Year Three or so. But like I said in in Spider-Man Blue, that was Spider-Man's recollection of those events. Well, can this not be argued as the same? Well, that's what we're saying. But even with that, this Grace woman serves no purpose. Maybe because she serves no purpose because Matt doesn't know what she do- she's doing. Yeah, but from a narrative point of view, that's quite dis- upsetting for us as the reader, yeah. isn't it? She ultimately has no purpose. Mm. And you're like, why is she here? Yeah. It was the only down note in the story. There is. But I think this issue as well loses and gains something in the Daredevil character. Because I think by introducing the villains like the Owl and the Fantastic Four, it gains its place in the Marvel Universe, but it loses the crime gothic the crime noir stuff that Frank Miller would later bring back yeah 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 that's fair enough this is a standard superhero story yeah which everyone seems to forget Daredevil started as crime noir for one issue and then became a standard superhero story I think he works better as a crime noir I think Daredevil works better like that I like Daredevil being crime noir because it it fits but Spider-Man works as crime noir as well but Spider-Man's a character who could fit anything we've seen except from the moon well, you take Spider-Man was... into space, and I'm, I'm checking out. Didn't he turn into cosmic Spider-Man? I actually didn't mind that story. <laughs> I thought that was quite funny. But the minute you take him into space and onto other worlds... So he's okay as cosmic Spider-Man, but actually yeah, because, going into yeah, the cosmos. Yeah, because that was, that was just a, a, a story where he got the power cosmic. Yeah. I can buy that in the Marvel Universe. The minute you take Spider-Man and dump him on the moon, I'm like, no. <laughs> just, No. Stop it. <laughs> Can we stop some muggers now, please? It's like when you have Batman on the moon. I think Batman works. But <laughs> no, he doesn't. If you think about it, Batman is a character who can fit any type of genre or story. He's your crime noir character. Yeah, we have had He's had his wacky Batman, yeah. stories, yeah? yeah? He has been on other planets. Not, albeit in his mind. Not for me, unfortunately. Anyway, tell all the readers what's next. I say readers. Lovely listeners. Continuity and <laughs> nitpicks. Uh, the meeting with the Fantastic Four is from pages 2 and 3 and page 22 of Daredevil issue 2, The Evil Menace of Electro, where it all goes down a little bit differently. In that issue, the thing does enter through the front door, trashing it, and he welds it back together by sheer force of will and two super strong arms, because welding works differently in the Marvel Universe. Matt isn't actually in the office when the meeting occurs and the FF just seem to randomly pluck this neophyte law firm out of the ether something Loeb avoids and manages to explain quite nicely. Foggy being a workshy fop assigns the case legal work on the lease to Matt anyway. On the way to the Baxter building, Daredevil discovers Electro trying to break into the FF's headquarters and it all goes a little bit Pete Tong when Daredevil ends up strapped to a rocket and entering the atmosphere and then goes for a horse ride through New York City. And that's even before we get to the silliness of Electro running a chop shop of car thieves. Anyway, in some of Stan's patented irony in preventing the Baxter building from being burgled, Matt cannot complete the task he's been paid for, and the FF drop Nelson and Murdoch. Loeb avoids all of this. And, like I said, ties it into FF39, where Matt Murdoch is still the FF's lawyer, which we just covered on Fantastic Cast. The Owl first appeared in Daredevil issue 3, the Owl, ominous overlord of crime, where his motivation for hiring Nelson and Murdoch was completely different. Basically, he randomly chooses them from a phone book. Okay. <laughs> he just opens a phone book and goes, I'll have them! <laughs> Proving that any lawyer can get him off whatever it is he's accused of doing. Fair enough. 
In the Daredevil scenes, Daredevil is seen carrying a man bag with his suit and personal effects. In Daredevil issue 3, Matt built an emo hood onto his costume to carry his clothes around with him. Perhaps realising the impracticality of this, the hood was ripped in issue 4 and never seen again. Fair enough. In the alleyway scene, Foggy is referred to by the college jocks as your fat friend. In the original issues, Foggy isn't fat. Mm. None of the rest of this issue is taken from the original stories. Although, in an interesting note, the titles of each issue have so far been all mentioned in the previous issues. Yeah. You know what else is that? I thought that was really subtle. Title for the next issue, Never Lead With Your Left, is mentioned in issue three. All right. And before that is mentioned in issue two. It's very clever. I thought that was very well done. Part four, Never Lead With Your Left. This time Matt is in a courtroom with Foggy in second chair. Daredevil is symbolically hanging around outside. This seems to be the only title that does not have a precedent that I could find. Daredevil heads over to the Baxter building to do work on the FX lease where he bumps into Electro. Electro is stealing secrets from the Fantastic Four to sell to the highest bidder, but Daredevil chases him out of the building and downtown to the Radio City Music Hall. Activating the sprinkler system with his billy club, Dee Dee shuts Electro down and basks in the adulation of the dancing girls. Back at Nelson and Murdoch, Karen Page is all agog as Daredevil swings by. And when Matt Murdoch enters, both he and Foggy are agog that Karen doesn't have a boyfriend. This leads to a night at the Bolarama, where Foggy, who has never heard of Three's a Crowd, beats a blind man and a young lady at bowling. Way to go, Foggy. A few days later at the New York State Penitentiary, Matt Murdoch watches as Slade is put to the electric chair for the death of Jack Murdoch. At Nelson and Murdoch, a few days later, Foggy sends Karen to the office of the Owl with some papers, and when he and Matt are alone, Foggy tells Matt he's going to propose to Karen. Apropos of nothing. <laughs> Again, a single-page splash leads into a double-page splash. The close-up of Daredevil on page one is fine, but it's the double-page of Dee Dee getting punched across the room by Electro that's the prize winner. Whilst the art is lovely, it's Loeb through Matt's inner monologue that nails it here. Villains wouldn't talk a lot back then, Matt muses. They didn't leave women in pools of blood. Costume ones never used to kill anybody. Uh, Loeb is subtly working in the loss of innocence that Matt feels as a character, also emphasised in the statement, when you're young and you think you're going to live forever, which is repeated throughout the issue, and the loss of innocence in comics, in general, into the narrative, and it's done very well. Why wouldn't the characters muse on the fact that the world is a lot grittier nowadays? Mm. Very good. I, I just like seeing Electro's old costume again. I really like that costume. I do. Is it campy and a little bit silly? Yes. Hmm. What's wrong with that in a comic? Yeah. Have you seen the photos of Electro in the new Spider-Man movie? All blue. And you're like, so you finally got Spider-Man's costume right? But you don't get and Electro. And you fouled up the villain. Yeah. Excellent. Well done. One step forward, two steps back. <laughs> The double page spread is part of the back matter at the rear of the book where it talks about how Sale designed the pages to be equally weighted so the middle did not ruin the flow of the art and then talks about how the grayscale ink wash artwork was converted to digital when Matt Hollingsworth coloured the work to look like watercolours. Again, it's a lovely little look at the artistic process. During the fight with Electro, Daredevil mentions Underdog. I don't remember Underdog. But apparently it was a cartoon crime-fighting canine that managed an impressive run of 124 episodes between 1964 and 1973. The character's primary love interest, Sweet Polly Purebred, is also mentioned. That makes sense. What? Because Jason Lee voiced Underdog in a recent film. Did he? Yeah. Oh, right, okay. I've not seen that either. Well, I haven't. I just know of it. When you hear Jason Lee, though, don't you just instantly go for Syndrome? 
You caught me monologuing! I, I go to mall routes, though. Do you? Yeah. Hold it like a woman. Yeah. You think because a guy reads comics, you can't start now? I can't do Justin Lee. No. Occasionally, you'll go to My Name is Earl, but not Yeah. Often. My name is Earl. My name is Syndrome! I <laughs> <laughs> think we just made a reference of some kind? You caught me writing a list. <laughs> yeah, but the thing with My Name is Earl is they ditched the premise of the show after the first season. Yeah. And you're like, why am I watching this anymore? Yeah, didn't it get to the point when they moved to Mexico? No, I don't. I stopped watching long before then. I'd, I'd still like, hey, crab man. Hey, Earl. Um, taking the fight to the Radio City Music Hall is inspired use of real-world locales. Electro's overconfidence leads to his downfall, which is, to quote David Byrne, the same as it ever was. But the beauty here is in the characterisation and the art. Dee Dee is a horn dog through and through, flirting with the chorus girls and thoroughly enjoying himself. And Sales' depiction of some of his acrobatic skills are wonderful to behold, never too outrageous, but showing just how much body control Matt has. He is also exceptionally curless. He swings past Nelson and Murdoch and then reappears as Matt within seconds. Both of these character traits, his way with women and his curlessness with his secret identity, would play into the character's future. Certainly Bendis' run was built entirely upon that, wasn't it? Yeah. The scene in the middle of this issue is priceless. There's a lovely casual nature to the dialogue, with some really funny beats as Foggy chastises Karen for losing interest in him when Daredevil swings by. So a great conversation between the three of them about superheroes and aftershave. The owl is mentioned in passing. The bowling scene is summed up by Foggy's face when Karen hugs Matt. I like the little um, bit that happens in every single superhero comic. What? Where Matt just walks in the door. And it's like, what if Daredevil just walked in <laughs> through that door? Yeah, didn't they riff on that in Superman Returns? Yeah. When, uh, is it a bird, is it a plane, it's, and Clark comes in. Yeah. Yeah. It's probably ripped it off from this. Wouldn't surprise me. Uh, Foggy bows a remarkable resemblance to Jimmy Cagney. Mm. You do not get that. No. You're not old enough to know Jimmy Cagney is. Uh, in fact, Foggy's an interesting character study throughout this entire story. Matt's his best friend, but there is a rivalry between them, isn't there? Yeah. Between the well, two. There always is between friends, really. Especially two professionals. And especially when there's a woman involved. Yeah, I mean, not only for Karen. Yeah. But the business itself, there seems to be a rivalry between the two of them. Matt thinks Foggy has one of the best brains in the business, but I don't think he ever tells him that. No. And given Foggy's low self-esteem, you'd think his friend would do that for him mm. every now and again. In turn, we see that Foggy always has feelings of inadequacy in relation to Matt, and he overcompensates by constantly pointing out the one flaw Matt has, his blindness. Yeah. But Matt's too polite to point it out. But Foggy does point that out on our, a lot, doesn't he? We get the first mention of Spider-Man here that Michael mentioned earlier on. Mm. Karen thinks she saw a superhero fly by, says Foggy. And Matt goes, really, which one? I like that Spider-Man myself. Yeah. It was Daredevil. Who? He did not fly, Mr. Nelson. He swings with a billy club. Billy club, Karen. You seem to know a lot about this Daredevil fellow. I read the Daily Bugle. Oh, the Daily Bugle, they don't like Spider-Man at all. <laughs> it's just... It's a lovely, 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 lovely bit. And then Foggy's next line. Hey, Matt, how did you know I was here when you first walked in? And uh, Matt says, aftershave. And Foggy starts sniffing himself and going, too much? And Matt's, you don't worry for me, Foggy. Oh, that's great. Absolutely fantastic. Lovely little playful bits of dialogue. Um, 
Best scene in the issue by far, though, is the execution scene. Rendered, again, entirely in grayscale. There's not even any colour mm. in the sequence where um, Slade is put to the electric chair. You know what Slade reminded me of, though? Go on. With his bald head and They've the little bit of shadow on it. Yeah. He reminded me of Tim Sell's Calendar Man. He does a bit. Yeah. I, I mean, I thought of Bruce Willis. Yeah. First of all, but... Bruce Willis is the Calendar Man. Yeah. Oh, Bruce Willis is... You know, somebody's postulated Bruce Willis as Lex Luthor in Man of Steel 2. Yeah. And there's part of me that's like... I would actually like to see him do that if they rein him in. Yeah. Don't let him do any of his Bruce Willis-isms. <laughs> rein him in and let him be Bruce Willis. And I think he could not let him be Bruce Willis, sorry. Mm. And I think he could be quite good as Lex Luthor. I wouldn't mind seeing that. I think it was in... Was it Fatman on Batman? Kevin Smith pointed to Bruce Willis? Duh. I think it'd work. I think it's a good piece of cast. Probably cost too much, wouldn't it? Mm. Um... Matt just sits dispassionately while Slade is executed, only allowing himself a single tear for his father when he's back home, when he picks up a picture of his dad and himself and sits in Jack's old chair. I really like the bit where he said he brought some pistachio nuts to eat ironically, but couldn't bring yeah, himself to Yeah, he couldn't bring it. himself to do it because Matt's not a... I was going to say a naughty word, though. Yeah. Matt's not a scumbag. No. But um, I liked that, that he brought some pistachio nuts to rub it in. Mm. But didn't he couldn't bring himself to be that cruel to a man who's on death row. Even the man who killed his dad. Good moral fortitude in there. Uh, the the ending, however, where Foggy brings out the ring to propose to Karen comes really out of left field. Yeah. Even if we assume this is another of Foggy's attempts to not lose out to Matt, reinforcing Foggy's workshy foppery, he sent Karen over to the Owls HQ with some paperwork rather than going himself. Yeah. He's a bit of a lazy guy, isn't he? There is. If look at that splash page of Matt, though. Yeah. Is he holding back a smile, though, or a laugh? I can't quite work it out. He looks a bit constipated <laughs> to me. He looks like he's thinking, oh, foggy. <laughs> Stop being a numpty. Because there's nothing brought up about this again. No. Well, yes, it is. That has a payoff. Yeah. Alas, kind of doesn't in the original issues, but we'll get there. Uh, for the most part this was an excellent issue it was rather more choppy than the others mm. it kind of just skips from scene to scene rather randomly but it's quite clear that Karen likes Matt more than Foggy but Love is blind and Foggy's desperate mm. so I don't know as a whole I don't think this holds together as well as Bloop but it's it's still bloody good yeah Continuity and nitpicks! <laughs> we should just get that made as a soundbite to stop you and keep saying it. The DD Electro battle from the beginning of the issue is taken directly from Daredevil issue 2, primarily the final couple of pages. Electro's motivation remains the same, steal secrets from the FF to sell them to some foreign power, but this removes some of the absurdities of that issue, which is one of the daftest in the room. The picture that Matt looks at in his apartment after the execution of Slade is of Jack sat in the chair that Matt sits in, both hands on his son's shoulders. It's a direct lift from Daredevil number one, page five, panel three, where Jack tells Matt he wants him to study and be an academic rather than an uneducated pug like himself, like they promised his mother before she passed away. It begs the question who took the picture, Yeah. but it's a nice little homage. Foggy proposing to Karen originally happened in Daredevil issue 5, the mysterious masked matador. In that issue, Foggy bought the ring and then kept bottling out of ASCII. None of the rest of this issue is from the original run. Part 5, Against the Ropes. The cover has Matt and Foggy descend the steps of the municipal courthouse, whilst Daredevil hollers, sim- hollers, hovers symbolically in the background. 
There's a theme developing here, isn't there? <laughs> High atop the Empire State Building, Daredevil stands and concentrates. Karen Page never returned from the Owls, and Daredevil uses every ounce of will to focus his hearing. Find one woman in a city of millions. And find her, he does. Focusing on her voice as she talks, first to the Owl and then to Grace, the woman from Part 3, Daredevil tracks her down to the financial bank where she's held captive by the Owl. Inside, Karen pleads to Grace to let her free, but Grace says with her debt to the Owl page, she is to be freed. Secrets are big, Grace tells Karen, and one day Karen will find out how much her secrets are worth. Grace leaves, but Daredevil arrives and frees Karen from her cage. Karen starts to leave, but the Owl swoops in, picks Daredevil up with his talons, and carries him into the earth. Daredevil, rather inexperienced with supervillains, is swept up in the moment, but recovers, swings around, and places a double-footed kick to the Owl's face. The Owl, a lover, not a fighter, flees into the night. Daredevil unspools his billy club and loops it around the owl, the momentum pulling him after his prey. The owl swoops and swerves, smashing into the Hudson River. An underwater fight ensues, with the owl managing to loop the billy club rope around Daredevil's neck. Daredevil pulls off a backwards headbutt and swims for the surface, but the owl is nowhere to be seen. The next day, at the offices of Nelson and Murdoch, Karen regales Matt with tales of Daredevil's heroic daring do. The banter is playful and flirty, and the duo end up in a clinch. This breaks Foggy Nelson's heart, and he retreats outside, unseen, depositing the flowers he bought for Karen in the trash receptacle outside. Aww! Against the Ropes was a 2004 movie starring Meg Ryan, but given that this issue predates that movie, I don't think we can count that as a nod. Uh, for the first time in all six issues, the double-page spread is split into two large panels instead of one large image. Daredevil is balanced precariously atop the spire of the Empire State Building overlooking New York, a dizzying spectacle that sale totally sells. Good, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I like the, speak my name. That's almost Batman. Swear to me. I thought we'd retired that. <laughs> Does it come out every now and again just to let us know it's still around? It's you watching the uh, trilogy again recently. Oh, God, yeah. (laughs) Batman Begins is still really good. Yeah. Not too sure about the (laughs) prequel. The Owl's motivation for kidnapping Karen is a little bit woolly. The Owl's story is a little little bit woolly. (laughs) With Karen in sway, the Owl hopes to control Matt. In turn, any jury will feel sorry for a blind lawyer and be inclined to vote with him. Therefore, if Matt is the Owl's defence attorney, any decision would theoretically go the Owl's way. I say it's woolly because Nelson and Murdoch have agreed to have the Owl as a client. Therefore, it's Matt's duty to defend him to the best of his ability as his client, mm. whether Karen's a hostage or not. Yeah. That didn't make a whole hell of a lot of sense to me. In fact, holding a hostage makes him not want to... Yeah. yeah. Having her as a hostage kind of backfires on him. I mean, unless his plan was to have him be his lawyer without paying him, but that's never mentioned. No. So, that that, that didn't really work for me. I think the owl was just included to add a little bit of... to add a villain, really. The owl was included because he does end up being a relatively famous, in inverted commas, Daredevil mm. villain. I actually prefer the original, but yeah. he finds Nelson and Murdoch by just plucking him at random out of a form book. Mm. That actually works better. Anyway, quick shout-out to Matt Hollingsworth, whose colours in this series have been exemplary. Uh, Grace's role in this whole thing still seems a little spurious to me, although she has a nice line here, where she pants out to Karen that one day Karen will have a secret, and she'll learn what it's worth to her. This is a nice bit of foreshadowing for Bourne, again, generally regarded to one of the finest Daredevil stories, in which a strung-out, down-on-a-look Karen Page was failed to make it in Hollywood sells Daredevil's real name for a fix. 
Cameron Page fell on hard times. Mm. Heroin porn star. Really? Oh, Frank Miller. <laughs> Daredevil rescues Karen Page by bending iron bars. Yeah. One of the things that I constantly find frustrating about certain writers' handling of Daredevil, and particularly the film, this bugged the hell out of me, is the idea that he has super strength. He doesn't. Mm. He's an exceptionally gifted athlete and fighter, but in terms of strength and speed, he's a normal guy. His superpower is his radar sense and his enhanced hearing, smell and touch. In a fight between him and Batman, Batman would probably take him. Yeah. Purely on a skill level. Daredevil's an excellent boxer. Batman knows everything. But they do at least point out that he, he found the weak point. Yeah, I was going to point that. It does mention, I thought that was a bit BS. Yeah. He managed to find the... I thought that was him explaining how Daredevil's bent some bars... <laughs> But it's like, all right, I'll go with it, I suppose. He'd probably give Nightwing a run for his money. Yeah. I don't I don't know who'd win in a fight between Daredevil and Nightwing, to be honest with you. Maybe Daredevil. You think? Yeah. You think the radar sense would ultimately give him the edge? Well, didn't they toy around with Nightwing being a bit of a ninja? I think they have toyed around with that, yeah. but Daredevil's fought ninjas and won. Mm. So, all right, fair enough. Depends if being written by a Daredevil writer or a Nightwing yeah, writer. Yeah, it depends which comic it's in, doesn't it? Yeah. Is it a Daredevil comic or a Nightwing comic? It's a Nightwing comic, Nightwing wings. It's Daredevil, Daredevil wins. Yeah. Isn't it great, <laughs> amidst all this in-depth analysis, it, it can still come down to who would win a fight between. Yeah. That's why comics are awesome. Daredevil versus Captain America. Cap. Yeah, because Cap's got super strength, hasn't he? Because yeah. he's a super serum. And he's a combat veteran. So I, I he's would come down. He's a master strategist. Yeah, I would come down on on, uh, on Cap's side. At least we're told he's a master strategist. We're told frequently that he's a master t- strategist. <laughs> you can't say but we're never that, actually you know. shown it. No. Even I struggle saying master master strategist. strategist. <laughs> um, oh dear! As has become a trope of this kind of story, the heroine gives the title character his name, or in this case, his nickname. Karen coins the term "man without fear." Mm. Which I thought was alright, I suppose. It's nice that Daredevil slips up and calls Karen by name, and she catches this. Yeah. She doesn't just let it slide. He plays the smooth card. Yeah. Doesn't he? And gets away with it. But it does mention that he does the standard superhero trick of lowering his voice when he's Daredevil. Because mm. don't they all do that? They do. They suddenly all start talking like this. Stand up straight and talk like Mexican wrestlers. <laughs> that would actually be awesome. <laughs> Um, El Daredevilo. <laughs> El Daredevilo. Of course, Spider-Man already has the tarantula. El tarantula. El Hombre Arana. El Captain, El Captain Mexicano. <laughs> Do you think they have a Captain Mexico? Probably. <laughs> um, the owl being able to fly is well handled. I like that Daredevil was shot by that. He yeah. wasn't expecting that. He never thought the owl had any superpowers. This catches him off guard. The fight scene that closes the issue is exceptionally good, but again, very brief. There's a great two-page splash of Daredevil pulling off some acrobatic stuff as the owl flies out to sea, wearing a pea-green colour, which I thought was just a lovely touch. Very mm-hmm. subtle. The owl flies out to sea in a pea-green coat. The owl and the pussycat. Uh, I, I thought that was really good. Uh, the level of detail in the artwork's magnificent. The water is choppy. The nighttime colours are wonderful, and the muted colour scheme of the costumes due to it being night are also well handled. My favourite panel is the last panel on that 
sequence where Daredevil's head just pops out of the Hudson River. Mm. And it's all black, apart from the buildings, which have a couple of lights on them, and the moon casting its silvery glow over the water is just wonderful stuff. I wish I could figure out how to make podcasts do that thing where they show images in the iTunes thing that change oh, yeah. so I could put that panel in cause you had multiple absolutely gorgeous do you can yeah. you do that? well you should start doing it ok and you'd have to be able to beep in or something don't you yeah ok fair enough um, the underwater scenes are very tense with Daredevil literally out of his depth and the owl gaining the upper hand as with all the narration boxes throughout the five issues are so Matt's thoughts are all boxing metaphors mm. which was a lovely touch that I quite like it's the final pages in this that are heartbreaking. I thought, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, Foggy walks in holding flowers and tossing the ring in the air, whistling a jaunty tune. And he catches the tail end of Karen and Matt's conversation where she falls into Matt's arms. Foggy is crestfallen. And the final page where he leaves the building unnoticed and he dumps the flowers and removes his tie is just so touching. Again, some wonderful sales storytelling. As he exits the door of Nelson and Murdoch, he's on the far right-hand side of Nelson and Murdoch, and we see Matt in the upper window. As he moves along the next two panels, throwing the roses in the bin and taking his tie off and then walking off, the panels change so that he moves across the window so we see Karen on the other side. Yeah. It's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. I like the contrast between the bright, happy conversation Mm. between Matt and Karen and then... What's going on with Foggy? Because I like Matt's dialogue. So, take that villain and say, did I hit you or was that the lamb? (laughs) Yeah, because they're reenacting the battle between Daredevil and the Owl and Karen's all excited. Still Mm. called him Mr. Murdoch. Yeah. Which is, you know, quite a nice touch. Lovely. Absolutely love it. Excellent issue. Not really a lot to say that isn't repetition. The art's great. The dialogue's great. It's all great. Mm -hmm. It's great, great. <laughs> Isn't it? Grey, grey. Grey, grey. That should be a new rating scheme. It should, yeah. Continuity <laughs> and nitpicks! I love the different inflections. And I thought I'd go for it. You've got, one, yeah. Yeah. Uh, very much a case of the same but different. The owl first appears in Dirt Evolution number three, as we'd already mentioned, and in that story, the owl is at the offices of Nelson and Murdoch, trying to convince Matt to be his lawyer. Dirt Evil intervenes, and Karen walks in on the fight. The owl grabs her just because she's there, basically. Dirt Evil surrenders because his middle name is Jean Luc, and the owl puts them both in bird cages. Dee Dee picks the locks, frees himself and Karen, and the owl flees in his boat. Daredevil jams the propeller, and the owl falls into the water. Pretty much the same stuff, but told differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had to ask a friend for the next one. I had to phone a friend. Oh, yeah. I couldn't find out if the issue of Foggy's proposal was ever brought up again in the original issues, as it never gets any play in the first six issues of the original run. So I consulted with Daredevil Guru, host of the Better in the Dark podcast, with his buddy Derek Ferguson and all-round good guy Thomas DJ, and he said... If I rem- the best song. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. If I remember correctly, they kept playing the Foggy Karen Matt triangle for something like three years, all the way through the hideously bad but in a fun way Mike Murdoch is Daredevil storyline, which saw Matt masquerading as his crazy swinging brother to throw his friends off the scent of his secret identity. I think Foggy eventually gave up on Karen somewhere in the mid 40s, where he starts courting the daughter of the organiser, Deborah, and ultimately marries her, which opens up a whole other can of worms, but there you go. Thank you, Thomas. We will be hearing from Thomas again. Mm-hmm. I don't think Thomas is in Tenacious D. 
Chapter 6, the final bell, has, you guessed it, a symbolic daredevil hanging over Karen and Matt, who are out painting the town red, literally, as the sky is a lovely sh- shade of auburn. Mm. I do like that one. It's good, isn't it? Because of the red. Yeah. Daredevil red. How apt. Yeah. Matt and Karen engage in the customary byplay, causing a pissed-off Foggy to answer his own phone. Tis the courthouse that has appointed Nelson and Murdoch attorney at law for one Zebediah Kilgrave, a.k.a. the Purple Man. And Matt hoofs it over there because Foggy is, as established, a workshy fop. Karen tags along, but the Purple Man has some kind of Jedi mind trick going on. And not only orders the guard to free him, but orders Karen along as his companion. Daredevil, being immune to the effect, makes the scene, but the Purple Man escapes by having a group of nearby coppers open fire. The Purple Man gets to a suite at the plaza and makes Karen more comfortable by ordering her to remove her clothes, but before this can turn into Daredevil Max, Dee Dee arrives, but as a distraction, Purple Man orders Karen to jump out of the window. Daredevil, of course, saves her, wraps up the Purple Man and leaves as Foggy arrives. But Karen only has eyes for Daredevil. Daredevil finishes the letter in the present day. It's helped him process everything, but now it's time to let go and move on. Matt Murdock has purchased Fogwell's dream and given it to Melvin Potter, a.k.a. the reformed supervillain, the gladiator, to run. The future is wide open, but Karen will never be forgotten and will live forever throughout all his yesterdays. She'll live forever unless you read a lot of Daredevil comics in the interim period where she was just not mentioned. Karen will never be forgotten unless you're the average comic book reader. <laughs> Karen will never be forgotten. Karen who? <laughs> uh, the final bell is a track on the Rocky 2 soundtrack. Kind of doubt that sort of low padding mind, but you never oh, know. I guess there's no easy way out. There's no easy way out. There's no shortcut, ho. Oh. Indeed. Hmm. Uh, in a lovely subtle piece of updating Karen as a desktop computer as on the Marvel sliding time scale this would now be the early 2000s with a Daredevil mouse mat so that was brilliant uh, Daredevil get paid for that do you think? maybe <laughs> oh so we're just saying that most of the present day then well it'll be set about seven to eight years ago at this point won't it because I had the impression I, I didn't notice that but I had the impression it was set around Tom Spider-Man Blue was set in the the era of that was set. In terms of publication, no. The Spider-Man Blue era was set around 1967, 68, wasn't it? Mm. Was it a bit earlier than that? I don't remember. Maybe in 66. It, it still had the very 60s feel Ditko to it. was still drawing Spider-Man when these were coming out as Daredevil issues. Yeah. So it wasn't contemporaneous with that. But in terms of Spider-Man history, Spider-Man's... This would take place before Spider-Man Blue. Right. Because Spider-Man meets Daredevil. Mm. I'll mention this later on. And he's wearing his yellow and red or yellow and black costume. But then there's an inconsistency. Because if she's got um, a computer here, mm. but Spider-Man Blue is set in the 60s... Spider-Man Blue's not set in the 60s. Spider-Man Blue will have been set in the mid-2000s. But I thought we said it was set in the 60s. No, we said it was very ambiguous. It was was certainly more 60s than 2000s. Yes, the fashions did lean more, but retro was back in. So, (laughs) you know, go-go boots. I still like a woman in go-go boots. Maybe that's just me, I don't know. Um, She's reading a Daily Bugle article by Ben Urich. Yeah. Which I thought was a nice touch. The article she's reading is all about Daredevil taking down the Matador, which is a 22-page story in the original text, cut down to two pages here. Mm. great dialogue and interplay between the characters through 
and through and a lovely symbolic look at Daredevil punching the Matador in the face. El Matadore. El Matadore. El Devilio. Yeah. I love the bits that they're just chatting about the story. And uh, Foggy's like, is anyone going to answer the phone? Because he's a work shy fop. Because he's a work shy fop. Yes, as we've established. Daredevil is, is referred to as young in the article, and Matt counters this by saying, um, do they really call him a bright young hero? I never thought of him as young. Now, Spider-Man, <laughs> he seems young to me. <laughs> um, Daredevil isn't young. Matt would be about 23 years old here. Although I suppose compared to the 15-year-old Spider-Man, yeah. he would be old, wouldn't he? 23 is ancient when you're 15. <laughs> Not quite as ancient when you're 40. Uh, are Nelson and Murdoch so flush with clients now that Foggy can turn down the judge's offer to act as attorney at law for Zebediah? What's his first? Well, the Fantastic Four was the first client, so maybe. And then the Owl. Yeah. So they're specialising in superheroes and villains, so you'd think he'd jump all over this, wouldn't yeah. you? Yeah, OK, fair enough. Uh, why did the Purple Man allow himself to be arrested in the first place? That's a good question. That he, made he no sense. Yeah. Surely you could have said, you don't want to arrest me. Mm. These aren't the droids you're looking for. But then You wish to let me go now. On the other hand, I don't know, because I'm thinking of modern now, and then I just answered my own question. Mm. I was going to say he got captured by S.H.I.E.L.D. That's no. later than this. He was captured by S.H.I.E.L.D. and then broke out an alias, right? Yeah. In, the, in terms of this story, this is the Purple Man's first in-house appearance, in-Marvel yeah. appearance. At this point, nobody knows he can do the Jedi mind trick thing. Why the hell did he let himself be arrested? Maybe he didn't want anyone to know he had the Jedi mind trick so he could bust out like this. So he's waited until the lawyers arrive before yeah. he's... Instead of just that one single guard yeah. that's on duty, when there was no one else around, instead of just going, you want to let me free now? Well, maybe he wanted someone to come along with a female companion first. And he couldn't have just got himself out of jail, walked out and gone up to the first woman he saw and said, you want to come with me now? Maybe, maybe he likes stealing. <laughs> no, it doesn't make sense, does it? No, it doesn't. <laughs> um, does Matt really club a police officer over the back of his head with his billy club? Yeah. <laughs> Love the sound effect, though. Bonk. <laughs> That's, that's, a, that's a Marvel Comics Chewbacca not yeah. that Gronk <laughs> not enough sound effects in comics anymore yeah. in my humble opinion I blame people like Warren Ellis <laughs> who just is like they look dumb no they're fun <laughs> boring get uh, the purple man is much more of a skeeve here than in the original um, it's a lovely touch that when people are affected by purple man's powers these victims turn purple Hmm. And then it fades when they're out of range. And we get another one of Sills painted double-page spreads of DD pulling one of those multiple acrobatic scenes. It's every bit as brilliant as the last one, when the purple man makes the police open fire on Daredevil. I love how, just in the background, they're casually getting into a taxi. Yeah. Ignoring that all this is going on. Absolutely fantastic. Daredevil quickly learns that the tide of favour can change. Hmm. So much for being the city's favourite son, which was a lovely line. Um... And then the Purple Man proves what an order scumbag he is. As soon as he gets Karen to the um, the hotel, the first thing he does is, uh, why don't you, you take your clothes off and then you can uh, play with the Purple Man. <laughs> Was that a euphemism? Probably is, but I liked how... I really like the Purple Man from uh, Alias and mm. Venice's Avengers, but it was refreshing to see him um, as not much of a scumbag he is in those 
Well, didn't he say that he was a rapist? Uh, yeah, he would later do this and have a daughter from it. And yeah. apparently that daughter is the product of the Pope man raping the woman with his Jedi mind trick. Yeah. So, yeah. So, and I kind of liked how he's on the road, though, but he's not quite the... Yeah, he's, he's still a little bit pleasanter here than he would become. Yeah. He's still a scumbag. Oh, yeah. But there are varying degrees of scumbaggery. Yeah, I think. There's scumbag and Bendis scumbag. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's a brilliant bit. Daredevil swinging across the city is a wonderful panel. Yeah. Sale draws New York wonderfully. If I get to go to New York, I want it to look like a Tim Sale drawing. Will you be disappointed? I will be very not? disappointed if it doesn't. And you do know I will see Spider-Man swinging around. Oh, yeah. Because he is totally real. And Superman flying around. Not in New York, dude. I'd have to go to Metropolis for Me- that. Metropolis is New York. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> No, I don't care what, yeah. Is that why the Statue of Liberty meticulously moved to Metropolis? Uh, they had a duplicate <laughs> Statue of Liberty in The Statue Metropolis. of Freedom. Yeah, in 1978 in Metropolis. Oh, yes. Absolutely true. Uh, here comes Daredevil, the man without fear. I thought it was a brilliantly funny line. Mm-hmm. Um, some pointed foreshadowing with Karen asking if Daredevil is always going to be there to save her. No, Karen, alas not. Uh, because Kevin Smith wants to do his own night Gwen Stacy died, doesn't he? Fair enough, yeah. Uh, Daredevil's carelessness with his secret identity again rears its ugly head when he practically repeats something he said to Karen earlier on as Matt Murdock. Mm. It's a complete mimic of a scene between Selina Kyle and Bruce Wayne in Batman Returns. Kiss can be deadly if you mean it. Mm. It's exactly the same as that, isn't it? Or I thought it was. Um, And in the next panel, do you like red... Karen, which has to be a nod to Superman the movie. I like pink very much. I expected the next line to be, I like red very much, Daredevil. I totally expected (laughs) that. Yes, to be the next line. Alas, it wasn't. Uh, Karen's the one that inspires him to change his uniform. Yeah. Because she says, um, why don't you wear red? You're a devil. Why are you wearing yellow? Mm. Makes no sense. I can go with that. And he, um, he, he didn't turn around and ruin his secret identity anymore by saying, well, I honoured my dead father. Who's a boxer? <laughs> I wanted him to go, this is yellow? <laughs> that would have been hysterical. <laughs> These crooks have been telling me it's black. But <laughs> alas, it would have it would have ruined his, his identity yeah. somewhat. But it would have been funny. Uh, Karen asks Daredevil on a date. And Daredevil's secret identity casual cock-up number two, he calls Foggy by name. Yeah. He's a bit dumb, isn't he? For such a smart guy. For a top-class lawyer. Yeah, for a top-class lawyer. Maybe he wants them to know. Yeah, secretly. I think he wants them to know. Um, I love that Foggy and Matt are such good friends that Matt being blind wouldn't have stopped Foggy punching him. Yeah. Which was brilliant. Matt seems completely insensitive to Foggy in this story, though. He doesn't seem to acknowledge in any way that Foggy fancies Karen. Because he's actually like, Foggy, what are we talking about? Karen. Karen. Karen, K-A-R-E-N. Doesn't have a clue, does he? No. Completely, completely blank. Um, blind to it. Oh, very good. Fine, fine conclusion to the series. Again, it closes where we started. Everything's black and white apart from Daredevil himself. Mm. Again, I wonder if this is Sale's subtle way of depicting the radar sense. But I guess we'll never know either way now, will we? Because mm. it's never mentioned. It's very good if it is. Yeah. I like it a lot. Um, it ends up being rather touching. And once again shows what a good writer Loeb can be. 
it doesn't have the impact of Spider-Man Blue. Well, no, because I was going to say, I, I, I thought this ending was a little bit disappointing. It just comes out of the blue. But how subtle. Yeah, it comes out of the yellow. It does just seem to end. Yeah. Because it doesn't have the impact of Blue by actually having a sequence where they discuss Gwen's death. Mm. You don't actually do that here. It doesn't discuss Karen's death. Karen doesn't feel important enough throughout the story for it to have that much of an impact at the ending. No, that's primarily because, like we said, Mary Jane and Gwen have cast this huge shadow of the Spider-Man strip. Mm. Karen Page's impact has been highlighted considerably less. But I don't think that matters within a story like this. No... It, the problem I have with it by not depicting Karen's death you don't get that she died do you and it's all left rather ambiguous does Daredevil go out on a date with her does Karen start dating Matt which we know does happen in the later issues of the, the Stan Lee run mm. but it's in terms of this story because we don't have that as part of this it feels somehow incomplete yeah Still, she was an important character in the early days, and she works well as a lost love for Matt, rather than focusing on Electra again. Yeah, which was the point of Man Without Fear. So I suppose he didn't want to rehash that. Karen ultimately found out who Matt was, and then left for California to pursue a career as an actress. Again, I had to reach out to Thomas DJ, mm-hmm. who said to me. Off the top of my head, I can't remember the exact number, but I do know it's either the second part of the Death Head story somewhere in the 60s or the issue right after it where Karen actually leaves. It's the issue that features Matt finally revealing his Daredevil on the cover. The whole Karen leaves for LA and now Matt's sad thing gets drawn out for over a year until Jerry Conway takes over from Roy Thomas and decides the best way to get Matt over the dishy blonde is by throwing him a hot redhead with issues and moving him to San Francisco, which is when the title became Daredevil Black Widow. Fair enough. Thank you, Thomas, for answering my irritating questions about Daredevil. That'll teach you to volunteer, because I'll take you up on it. <laughs> uh, no, thank you very much. That was very helpful, because I, I leafed through my essential for ages trying to find where Karen left, yeah. and I could not, for the life of me, find it. Um, following this, Karen fell on hard times, selling Matt's secret for a heroin hit in Born Again. She ultimately returned to New York where she was killed by Bullseye in Guardian Devil. What is it with Bullseye and Matt's girlfriends? Yeah, he likes killing him. Yeah. And now Daredevil likes killing him. Yeah. Which is fair enough. Continuity and nitpicks. Uh, ben Urich is a retroactive mention of a character who first appeared in Daredevil issue 153, where his investigative journalism skills lead him to be one of the first to uncover Daredevil's secret identity. Urich has since appeared all over the Marvel Universe and is a close colleague of Peter Parker, whilst they worked at the Daily Bugle. Played by Joey Pantoliano, Urich was badly miscast in the Daredevil movie, movie sorry, as a hipster cool journalist more in the mould of Bendis' ultimate universe re imagining rather than the original Kolchak-esque badly dressed but tenacious incarnation of the comics. You know I consider Ben Urich to be more of a Spider-Man character than a Daredevil character. Do you? I think I've seen him in more Spider-Man stuff than Daredevil. Yeah, yeah he does cross over quite quite a lot. I'm surprised nobody's killed him yet. Yeah. I'm glad nobody's <laughs> killed him yet, but I'm quite surprised by it. Uh, this is the second time in the series Matt has mentioned that he likes Spider-Man. Daredevil and Spider-Man first met in Amazing Spider-Man issue 16, appropriately entitled Duel with Daredevil, which came out in between Daredevil's issue 3 and 4. Where that fits into yellow is anybody's guess, but there's enough gaps in the chronology to make it fit. 
Personally, I would have liked to see it represented in this series instead of the bowling match in issue four. Mm. Matt, Foggy, sorry, could have took them to the circus and we could have had that issue of Spider-Man depicted in the middle of this. Yeah. Which I would have think would have been a lot more fun than that bowling match. Backdoor pilot to Spider-Man. Yeah, though. and we could have got Tim Silver and Spider-Man, yeah. which would have been cool. Um, here comes Daredevil the Man Without Fear, says Daredevil. is a lovely little nod to the masthead on early Daredevil comics. The Purple Man originally appears in Daredevil issue 4, menaced by Kilgrave, the unbelievable Purple Man, where the Purple Man primarily uses his Jedi skills for evil and robbing banks. He kidnaps Karen to make her his secretary rather than raping her. It was a simpler time. And Daredevil uncovers evidence that he was a spy for a foreign nation. None of this is ported over to the retelling. We never found out why the Purple Man is in prison or even why he allowed himself to be arrested in the first place. And this kind of weakens the story. Let's be honest, anyone with half a brain who had Kilgrave's powers would hit a bank calmly ask the teller to give over a couple of fouls and then leave without causing a stink the teller wouldn't remember anything because according to this the people whose mindy Jedi mind wipes don't remember it do they so he could have got away with it and he could have lived a long and comfortable life only going getting money when he needed it and never getting into trouble with the police or superheroes Mm. Therefore, Kilgrave may be one of the supervillains with the best superpower ever, who is incredibly dumb. So he could have lived his life like Parker. Yeah. yeah. Runs out of money, goes and gets another job. Yeah. Doesn't draw attention to himself other than the fact that he's purple. So that's <laughs> not a crime. <laughs> yeah. And lives a comfortable a life. Purple. But he's dumb in yellow for no reason. He's actually depicted as being a little bit smarter in the original text, where he is arrested for robbing the bank before the authorities realised that he didn't actually do anything they can prosecute him for. Yeah. It's not illegal to walk into a bank and just ask for money, (laughs) which is what he does. That's clever. It's not illegal for the bank teller to give him that money. Yeah. That's not illegal. Of course, Daredevil 4 follows the old making it up as we go along philosophy and the spy stuff. Mm. He's stagged on at the end and just seems to be a, basically a rip-off of the, uh, the Electro stuff where he was stealing something to sell to foreign nations. The Matador originally appeared in Daredevil issue 5, the mysterious masked Matador, and appears to have no superpowers other than the ability to wave a red cape around and let people inexplicably run at him. <laughs> True! Uh, it seems to me if people had left him alone he'd just have been a prat waving a red cape around, wouldn't he? But they didn't. As soon as he started doing that, they run at him like they're bulls. <laughs> it was ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. Anyway, the Matador manages to convince everyone he's a good guy. Kids start buying Matador capes. But Daredevil proves he's a scumbag and takes him down. It's not one of the best issues, it's to be honest. hilarious, to be honest. I'm best ignored. In my humble opinion. Uh, completely ignored in Daredevil Yellow is Daredevil issue 6, trapped by the Fellowship of Fear. This introduction to Mr. Fear isn't bad and would have been nice to have seen Loeb Sales' interpretation of this story. The absence of issue 6 from the original series implies that any reader so interested can just read Daredevil there and go forward. Now, I love Daredevil as a character, but even I found these early issues hard to get through. Yellow streamlines the story, making it read better and faster, but it does exclude some good material. It's not as definitive as Spider-Man Blue, but arguably Blue was adapting better stories to begin with. For a more comprehensive look at the early days of Matt Murdock before he was Daredevil, the miniseries Man Without Fear by Frank Miller and John Romita Jr. has you covered, although Man Without Fear has the usual problems Miller's work has, i.e. it largely ignores and tromps all over the work of others. 
it is possible to read Man Without Fear and Yellow together and with some shoehorning have the definitive story of the early days of Matthew Murdoch. Miller's take flatly contradicts the original stories. Matt is still a teenager and is years away from putting on the suit when his father is killed and Daredevil kills two people during the course of Man Without Fear. It's not ambiguous like it is in Daredevil Yellow. He kills two people. Whereas Loeb Sale's take is a lot more reverential to the source material, i.e. it's implied Loeb and Sale have actually read it. Man Without Fear is a solid read, a good story, has some exceptional art from Ramita Jr., but as a Daredevil fan rather than someone who worships slavishly at the Temple of Miller, Yellow is the preferred option. Oddly, neither mention his brother Mike. (laughs) I wonder why. Odd that, innit? Uh, we'll be back next week we hope you enjoyed that troll through Daredevil Yellow I know I thoroughly enjoyed it not as good as Spider-Man Blue but still damn damn good Mm. next time on an all new episode of Hey Kids Comics we will be looking at Nightwing year one remember you've still got a week to get in your Q&A's because we really want to do a Q&A show because well, we want a week off a week to quite get frankly get to get your in and then we'll do the airs yeah. that seems to be the way it works doesn't it we have run well over time this week mm-hmm. two and a half hour episodes sorry lovely listeners I do apologise kids listening to us for two and a half hours must be quite onerous mm-hmm. one would have thought uh, we'll see you next week for Nightwing Year 1 bye bye oh sorry I always appreciate long episodes why do you appreciate long episodes And on that bombshell, we'll be back next week. Bye-bye. Goodbye. is a The Devil Will Find Work for Idle Hands to Do production. The music and sound clips used in the show are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only. And no infringement is intended, so don't send your phalanx of highly paid lawyers after us as we have no money. Certainly this show was not turned into a lucrative revenue stream as no money is made from this either, which vexes us. The opinions of Michael and Andrew expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and no one else. They own them, cherish them and look after them, but are probably not to be taken too seriously. New episodes drop every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com and Hey Kids Comics is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, your one-stop shop for a plethora of truly fine shows. Join in the fun. We have a website where you can see the covers of the comics we've covered at www.heykidscomics.webspace.virginmedia.com and we can be emailed directly at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We can also be friended on Facebook by using Hey Kids, all one word as the first name, and Comics as the surname. We also have a forum, www.forumforgeeks.com. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics.
Oh, 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 oh,